The following is a conversation with David Buss, evolutionary psychologist at UT Austin, researching human sex differences in mate selection. He's considered one of the founders of evolutionary psychology and has authored many exciting and challenging books, including The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating, Bad Men, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault, and The Murderer Next Door, Why the Mind is Designed to Kill. We talk a lot about sex, dating, relationships, and love. I take these, at times, controversial topics very seriously, but I also try to inject humor and ridiculousness throughout this conversation, and all conversations I do. Please do not mistake my silliness for a lack of seriousness, and my seriousness for a lack of silliness. And above all, do not mistake my suit and tie or my PhD as a sign of intelligence or wisdom. I barely know what I'm talking about on most days. I'm simply curious and hoping to understand the way a child does, what the heck is going on in this weird and wonderful civilization of ours. If I say something stupid, as I often do, I promise to learn and to improve. As Mark Twain said, I do not want my schooling to interfere with my education. Open-minded curiosity, I think, is the best guide for a proper and fun lifelong education. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got Notion for startups, ExpressVPN for privacy, Roca for style, Onnit for supplements, and Indeed for hiring. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Notion, a note-taking and team collaboration tool. It combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and much more into one space that's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. A lot of people care a lot about note-taking and talk to me a lot about it. You know, I started back in the old school days of Emacs and Vim. Emacs was my weapon of choice. But now in the modern day, in the 21st century, you gotta be using the best tools for note-taking. Uh, way better, way fancier than uh, the old school Emacs. Although, I should say Emacs still has a purpose. And uh, what everybody recommends, what all the cool kids recommend, if you look at like what the top recommendation is for note-taking, is going to be Notion. Now, Notion also wants me to tell you not just about their note-taking, but the fact that it's awesome for startups. It's like a operating system, as they say, for running every aspect of the company as it grows. Notion is running a special offer just for startups. You get up to $1,000 off of Notion's team plan by going to notion.com slash startups. To give you a sense, that's almost a year of free Notion for a team of 10. Go to notion.com slash startups. That's notion.com slash startups. This show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them, I've used them for many years to protect my privacy on the internet. There's three things I wanna tell you about. One, ISPs still track your data even if you go to all kinds of shady websites using incognito mode. And I know you well. I know you do that kind of thing. You dirty dog, you. <laughs> Uh, the second thing you should know about is you can change geographic locations for shows like Netflix and Hulu 
all that kind of stuff. That's useful. My favorite thing is that the thing just works super fast, which is what you would want from a good VPN. It works fast, works on any device, any operating system. Go to expressvpn.com slash LexPod to get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash LexPod. Did I mention it works on Linux? That's the best and the most important operating system. This show is also brought to you by Roka, the makers of glasses and sunglasses that I love wearing for their design, feel, and innovation on material, optics, and grip. Roka was started by two All-American swimmers from Stanford and was born out of an obsession with performance. Two words that I love, obsession in all walks of life and performance in all walks of life. But when you're talking about sunglasses, what does uh, that result in? It results in a classy, sexy, minimalist, functional design. They're good at what they do. It's extremely lightweight. The grip is comfortable, but strong. I run in them all the time. You're talking about in the Austin heat, in the Boston cold, it works. It looks good. Check them out for both prescription glasses and sunglasses at roca.com and enter code LEX to save 20% off your first order. That's roca.com and enter code LEX. This episode is brought to you by Onnit, a nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. They make Alpha Brain, you may have heard of that, which is a nootropic that helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. I do deep work sessions. You should read Cal Newport's deep work book uh, to understand what that means. It means focusing for prolonged periods of time in a single task and going to some deep, dark places of struggle because your mind wants to be distracted. Your mind wants to switch to another task and you don't let it. And that's what deep work is. So before especially difficult sessions of this kind, I will take an alpha brain. It helps boost my thinking through a problem, clears the mind, helps me maintain focus. It's just a nice super boost for the rocket that is uh, the human mind. Anyway, go to lexfriedman.com slash honor to get up to 10% off Alpha Brain. That's Lex Friedman, my name, dot com slash it. This show is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led in the past and still use them and use them a lot. They have tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. There's very few things as important in life as the people you surround yourself with. And because most of us do most of the meaningful, most of the wild, hardworking pursuits of our lives at our work, uh, it's important to surround yourself with great people there too. Perhaps even more important, those are the uh, the brothers and sisters that stand by your side as you do some of the most difficult things in your life. So you should select that team well. The team is what makes or breaks a business, any kind of effort. Anyway, right now, get a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Lex. Get it at indeed.com slash Lex. Offer good for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. Go to indeed.com slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with David Buss.
What is more important in the history of the development of human civilization, sex or violence? So mating strategies or military <laughs> strategies? Oh, well, both are important. I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, humans are a sexually reproducing species, and so everything has to go through sex. You know, so in our, our mating psychology has to be very rich and complex because uh, to succeed, uh, for us to be here now, uh, all of our ancestors in a, an unbroken chain uh, have had to succeed in selecting a fertile mate, attracting that mate, uh, be mutually chosen by that mate, um, stay together long enough, do all the sexual things you need to do to reproduce, have the kids survive, et cetera. So everything has to go through mating. And in that sense, I think it's, uh, I mean, survival was really only uh, a means to an end, if you, if you will. Uh, so, uh, so, so sex has got to be important, and humans have a very rich, evolved sexual psychology or an evolved mating psychology. Okay, but uh, I wouldn't minimize the importance of violence either. There's a ton of evidence that humans evolved in the context of small groups and with a fair amount of small group warfare, so intertribal warfare, uh, where, uh, and this is a, a harsh realization, but there historically, um, this is part of our bad evolutionary history, it has been advantageous from a purely reproductive standpoint to conquer uh, a neighboring group, kill the males, uh, and uh, get whatever resources they have, including females and, and sexual resources, tool, as well as tools, weapons, territory, and so forth. And so, um, and so I think that we have, uh, and of course, it's, it's typically males um, who do that. I mean, yes, some females have participated in warfare, but uh, as far as I know, there's never been a single case in all of human recorded history of women forming a war tribe with other women to attack another group of women and kill them and capture the men uh, as husbands. But the, these, uh, this phenomenon is common um, in the ethnographic record and small group uh, studies. Um, it, it's part of our common thing. So just one concrete example. Unfortunately, he's dead now. He passed away. Napoleon Chagnon, who studied the Yanomamo for many, many years, um, when he first started interviewing them, he he asked them, you know, why do you go to war? Um, and they said, well, to, to capture women, of course, but it's the only sensible reason. And they said, you know, why do why does your culture go to war, or however they phrased it? And, and he said, well, you know, we go to war for to spread democracy and ideas and everything. And they basically fell off their logs laughing at such a stupid reason, because why risk your life for anything um, other than women? Now, of course, it's more complex than that, because uh, some um, go to war for uh, reputational reasons. They say, if we if we don't retaliate because we've been attacked and they've stolen three of our women if we don't retaliate then we will get a reputation as exploitable and then other groups will start to attack us as well and so they get into these cycles of um you know like the hatfields and mccoys of uh, attacks counterattacks, retribution and part of it is is um reputation management um, so that's that's between groups, and and I think that's been the the primary source of 
violence, but not the only source. So um, there's also within group conflict. And so many ethnographies, many traditional societies have things, some of them are ritualized like wrestling matches or uh, in the Anamamo, they have uh, these, uh, or used to, these uh, chest pounding duels where, so if we're in this match, you challenge me and I have to, of course- chest pounding duel. <laughs> it, I like this. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's uh, not, you're not hitting each other. You're just, it's like peacocking. You really- oh, oh, no, you're hitting each other. Oh, so, sorry. Yeah, so yeah. They, they, they get 20 paces away and they, they run up and you punch the other guy in the chest and in he has to chest. basically stand there. And then he Ribs does the same and everything. To you. Oh, wow. Uh, and then it's basically last man standing. That's, well, I suppose that's better than the face. That's an interesting decision with the chest. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if you get good at that kind of thing, you could start breaking ribs. Yeah. And you can get loose about the rules of where exactly in the chest you can hit. What are, <laughs> and, yeah. then, and there's that guy who's always known for hitting not exactly in the chest, <laughs> right, accidentally right, missing. <laughs> right, right. The, the, the Mike Tyson of exactly <laughs> of, right, yeah. eating your ear off. So yeah. interesting. So there's like ritualized uh, conflict, to sort of uh, purify the um, the competition that 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 resolves some kind of issue. Well, yeah, it's in part to establish status hierarchies, yeah. you know, um, but. Um, but also, and here's here's just another one more concrete point on, on that. The Yanomon, we don't have this in our language. We just have one word for kill or murder. But Yanomamo have, um, you're either an Uno, if you're a male, you're an Unokai or a non-Unokai. The non-Unokai are men who have not killed. Uh, if you're an Unokai, that means you have killed someone. And the Unokai um, among the Anamamo historically had higher status and more wives. So they're a, a, a polygynous uh, society, which is which has been true of um, something like eighty three to eighty five percent of uh, traditional societies. Uh, or actually, I was just corrected by an anthropologist. He said we no longer call them traditional societies; we call them small scale societies. So nothing can be called traditional. I, I don't know. Like is I bacteria think it, I, is the I, traditional society. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I think it's just uh, one of these things. The language, the word, the the words that are deemed appropriate to use to describe things change over time. So, yeah. So words can hurt people. They can inspire people. Words are funny, powerful things. You authored the textbook titled "Evolutionary Psychology: The New Science of Mind" in its uh, sixth edition. What is the magic ingredient that gave birth to Homo sapiens, do you think? Is it fire, cooking, ability to collaborate, share oh. ideas, ability to contemplate our own mortality, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I think it's hard to isolate one factor. I know uh, I know you've had Richard Rangham on this yeah. podcast. It was a wonderful, wonderful interview. And uh, he used to be a colleague of mine when I was a professor at, at Michigan. And um, I've stayed in touch with him uh, on and off. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And he thinks uh, fire and cooking have been one of the key things. But I think it's hard to isolate. Um, I would trace at least part of our uniqueness to uh, the uniqueness of our mating system. So we have in, in mating, uh, unlike chimpanzees, who are our closest primate relative, and of which Richard Rangham is is a world's expert, 
but they have basically no long-term pair-bonded mating. Okay, the female comes into estrus, all the mating, all the sex happens. Most of the sex happens during that window. But humans have evolved long-term pair-bonded mating. Uh, and it's, it's only one mating strategy, but it's a really important one. And then you have with that um, male parental care. So basically, again, you go back to chimps and chimps uh, with whom we share more than 98% of our DNA males don't do anything. So they inseminate the females, but then when the kids are born, they basically don't do much of anything in terms of provisioning and so forth. But human males do. We invest um, in, in the modern environment, could be decades, you know, especially with the boomerang kids and everything. But uh, we're, uh, not all males do, but compared to the vast majority of mammals, we are a very heavy male parental investment species could you uh if it's okay and i'll ask you a bunch of dumb basic questions uh, because those are fun uh could you define mating here are we is mating referred to the 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 series of sexual acts that lead to reproduction is it include like dating and love and camaraderie uh, loyalty, all those things. Yes, uh, I, you know, when yes, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I first started studying it, yeah, I don't. So it's when I first started studying it, I looked for the right term, and uh, obviously, it's much broader than sex. So, by mating, I include things like mate selection, uh, mate preferences, mate attraction, mate retention, mate poaching. Um, Mate expulsion. So Mate had, poaching, that sounds fun. So yeah. the early, the uh, the game theoretic strategy of mate selection is primary what mating, what mating is about, or do you include the long-term once uh, you agree that you're gonna stick this out for a while and have multiple children, is that also mating? Yes, I include that as well. So okay. it's, it's it's a broad, broad category. Broad definition and, and, and absolutely includes the emotion of love. Um, and of course, there are many different types of love, brotherly love, love parents to, for children. Uh, but love, I think, uh, and this is one of the shifts in the social sciences. So when I was an undergraduate, for example, I was taught that love is this um, invention by some Caucasian European poets a couple hundred years ago. And, um, and it turns out that's not the case. So you, you, there's been extensive cross-cultural evidence now that um, that people, not every person in all cultures, of course, but all some people in all cultures experience this emotion that we call love. And for the word love, are we going to, in this conversation, try to stick to sort of romantic love for the, the, for, for the meaning of the word love? Well, there, uh, that's, that's a great question, but um, I mean, there, uh, it's pretty well established that there are these different phases of, of love. So there's this uh, infatuation phase where uh, our psychology, we, we get obsessional thoughts. It's hard to focus on work when we're not with the person. We're thinking about the other person constantly. Uh, so there's kind of like uh, ideational intrusion mm -hmm. into our psychology. But you, you, you can't sustain that. I mean, it'd be uh, – and then, of course, there's a uh, – Pardon the phrase, but what I describe as the fucking like bunnies phase of yes. of this, you know, intense sexuality. But mm -hmm. people have other adaptive problems they have to solve, uh, and so you can't stay in that state for too long. And so that subsides over time, and um, 
and develops into, uh, at least in many cases, this warm attachment. Cuddling bunnies, long-term cuddling bunnies. Yes. Phase of the relationship. But still romantic, not like brotherly love or, you know, because I, I, I talk about a love, a lot, love a lot. And for me, uh, you know, love is a broader ex experience of just um, experiencing the joy and the beauty of life. So like just looking out in nature, yeah, that's, that's a kind of love, like whatever the chemicals that lead to a feeling that at least echoes the same kind of feeling that you get with romantic love, you can experience that with even inanimate objects. That sounds weird to say, but just a gratitude and appreciation, um, not in some kind of uh, weird Zen way, but just in a very human way. Just, it feels good to be alive kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I would, I mean, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. I guess there, I would use other terms to describe that. So like the term awe, for example, when you see a beautiful sunset, you know, that's why I kind of started out by saying, I think there are different types of love and, yes. and I'm focusing on the mating Type. And we'll talk about that, but so yeah, there is a sense of beauty and there's a sense of sexual appeal, maybe that's a good, and those intersect in fascinating ways. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay. We'll talk yeah. about all of that. But you're saying mating strategies, not that we've kind of um, placed ourselves what we mean by mating. Mating strategies is one of the cool features that made humans what they are. One of the initial inventions is is a weird, uh, weird and wonderful ways that we mate. Yeah, and I mean, if you go to even things like um, how we compete for mates, and this is another kind of strange for some people angle on it, but mating is inherently a competitive process uh, in that desirable mates are in scarce supply relative to the numbers of people who want them. Uh, and so even, even post-mating, after that is after mate selection, mate attraction, and mutual mate choice, uh, desirable mate, that's why there's mate poaching. Mate poaching is one of the strategies that uh, we in my lab with David Schmidt uh, uh, have, have studied. Um, and so, uh, okay, but one of the unique aspects of humans is that we compete using language. Um, and uh, that is, we have reputations, and humans devote a lot of effort to maintaining the reputations, to building the reputations, to uh, trying to recover uh, reputations after uh, a, a loss of reputation for various reasons. But we, we compete for mates um, using language, and that includes sending signals to the person that we're trying to attract using language, um, uh, verbal fluency, and you know, obviously some more recent things like poetry. Uh, but also we use language to derogate our competitors. So one, one of the papers I published very early on, it was a research project on derogation of competitors, the, the ways in which people impugn the status, character, and reputations of their rivals with the goal of making them less desirable to other people. And humans do that, and uh, women and men both do that. So it's an interesting thing where male competitions, we were talking about the Yanomamo earlier and some of these um, overt physical or what, what animal biologists call contest competition, where there's a physical battle. 
uh, males do that. And so a lot of the early attention on mate competition was focused on these sort of ostentatious overt battles in contest competition. But we compete through language. Um, and, uh, and so there's this big overlooked domain of women, the ways in which women compete with each other using language. And one of the things that astonished me is how um, observant women are about the subtle imperfections in their rivals and take pains to point them out. So just, just as a uh, random example, I went, went to a party this is back in in my youth, but went to a party with uh, um, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, and I got into this conversation with another woman who happened to be very attractive. But um, but then we we leave the party, and she said something just casually offhanded, like she said, "Did you notice that um, her thighs were heavy?" Mm-hmm. And I hadn't. But next time I saw her, this other woman, I, I, start, I found my attention being drawn to check out her thigh. Well, and originally it puzzled me why women would derogate other women on appearance. Well, they do it, of course, because men prioritize um, appearance. But I thought, well, the man can see the woman directly with his own eyes. Why would verbal input alter his perceptions of how attractive he was? And I think that Mm -hmm. part of it is, I think there are actually two quick answers to that. One is the attentional one. So our attentional field, sure. when they draw attention to it, the those what could be very small deviations from perfect symmetry or whatever they are become magnified in our attentional field. But the other is that um, who we have as a mate is also a reflection of our own status. Um, and and, and we, you saw this in a kind of um, overt and uh, way in the, uh, earlier, the last presidential, not the last, the, the, the uh, uh, 2016 presidential election where uh, Donald Trump was saying, this was when he was in competition with Ted Cruz, I think, in the mm-hmm. primary. He said, look, look at my wife, look at Ted Cruz's life and he, mm-hmm. wife. And he really impugned the appearance of Ted Cruz's wife. So using language, you can alter the um, the dynamics of the social hierarchy, the status hierarchy, sorry. So like you can change the values subtly or if you have a large platform in big ways, you can move things around just with your words. Yeah, yeah, that's right, right. Yeah, and, and fascinating with yeah, humans yeah. because it's all socially constructed anyway. So this, uh, I mean, the question I have is you said there's the interesting thing about mating strategies is there's a small pool of desirable mates and what the word desirable means is socially defined almost by on purpose to make sure the pool always stays small i would have a couple thoughts on that now it's an interesting issue set of issues you raise okay one is that um we i think we have evolved adaptations part of our psychology is to detect differences um and so this is why um, like a, I don't know, a, a, a Martian or an alien coming down, at, they might look at humans and say, boy, they all, they all look alike. Mm-hmm. Uh, as one, just like we look at, uh, I don't know, zebras or whatever, and yeah. we think they all look, look alike. Um, but what's important in decision-making, especially in the mating domain or even friendship domain or, or coalitional selection domain, is the differences. 
And and so I, I noticed this just a concrete example of this. Um, uh, I was sitting around. This is again uh, ages ago, uh, watching a, um, a a something like a Miss America beauty contest, and people in there with a bunch of other people, and they were saying. Boy, did you see Miss North Carolina? What a dog! And and so yeah. this is astonishing. And so here are like a fifty contestants who are selected as the most attractive in their state, presumably. Um, although they, they claim it's based on talent, um, but um, but we notice the differences. Um, and 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 uh, and this is why I would push back a little bit on the term socially constructed because I think it's um, there are many different meanings of that of that phrase and sure. one meaning it, it, that some people have one connotation is that it's arbitrary and i don't think it's arbitrary so uh this has another been another shift in understanding standards of beauty where it used to be believed in the in the social sciences you can't judge a book by its cover beauty is only uh, skin deep uh you know don't judge people on the superficial characteristics but in fact physical appearance provides a wealth of information about the health status of someone there uh, in the case of males their physical formidability and we have formidability assessment adaptations and then fertility as well so there are a very predictable set of cues to fertility that have evolved to be part of our standards of attractiveness and and they're not arbitrary there are some culturally arbitrary ones so like you go to the the Maori in New Zealand, for example, and they find tattoos on their lips to be very attractive. Uh, so there are some culturally arbitrary things, um, but uh, standards of beauty like uh, cues to youth, cues to health uh, in women, clear skin, uh, full lips, clear eyes, lustrous hair, um, a small waist-hip ratio that is uh, circumference of the waist relative to the hips, uh, is acute to youth and fertility, and and, and acute to health. Uh, symmetrical features. So we are a, a bilaterally bilaterally symmetrical species, but we all have we all have uh, deviations from perfect symmetry that are due to different things: uh, mutation load, uh, environmental insults, diseases during development, and so forth. All right. But th that's kind of deeply biological. Like there's cues that indicate something that is biologically true about a particular human. So if we, we'll talk about mo both men and women. Uh, so we're now talking about what men want in the mating strategies when they look at women. So you're saying small waist to hip ratio. Right. Is how much of that is our deep biological past on top of which we can build all kinds of different standards of beauty. So, you know, we have many things going on in our brain. Um, our value of other humans in selecting a mate might uh, incorporate a lot more variables as we get into the 21st century. So how quickly does our um, valuation of a mate uh, evolve relative to the evolution of um, the human species. They're using evolve in the sense of culturally evolve? Culturally evolve, uh, uh, and then relative to biologically evolve. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think that there are, um, there are some things that are 
biologically evolved some standards standards of attractiveness um and there are some of the things that i mentioned so in male evaluation of females let me back up and just say what is the underlying logic why would we have standards of attractiveness so um it, 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 here's the interesting thing, and this gets back to your earlier question about what is um, unique to humans or, or what distinguishes us or what set us off on the path that we did, is um, chimpanzee males do not have any difficulty figuring out when a female is fertile. She signals that like crazy with the bright red genital swell, uh, swelling, uh, olfactory cues, she goes into estrus. In humans, we have, and this was actually a third thing that I wanted to add earlier, we have concealed ovulation, okay, relatively concealed ovulation, which is remarkable given how close we are primatologically to, to chimpanzees. Uh, and so um, uh, there's, there's a little bit of evidence that there are subtle changes that occur when women ovulate non women not on hormonal contraceptives. But it's mostly concealed. But it is it is largely concealed. Do you think so, that's a feature of a bug in uh like do we evolve that is that a, is that a a cool <laughs> a powerful invention for the human species? I, I think it's it's an adaptation in women that women have evolved concealed ovulation. Uh and I think it's a feature not a bug. Uh, yeah, it gives more would it give more power for women to select uh, a mate? There are a couple different hypotheses about it, but the one that I think is most plausible uh, is that, you know, if again, comparing it to chimps, FEMA goes into estrus. The male just has to try to monopolize her while she's in that estrus phase, and then they basically ignore the females after that. If you can't know when a, when a woman is fertile, then you have to stick around a lot longer. And so I think long-term pair bonding co-evolved with concealed ovulation. Uh, and with that, also a, a very different form of sexuality, which is that we have sex throughout the, uh, the ovulatory cycle um, and uh, chimps don't. You know, there's, there's a little bit of mating, a little bit of sex toward the edges of the um, estrus cycle, but, but very little. So that, that actually makes mating a more fundamental part of um, interaction between humans than it does for chimps. So me meaning like year round, every day, we're constantly <laughs> selecting mates in terms of biologically speaking. So what what else what, what else do men want Ver okay. today in the 21st century versus in, in the caveman days? A wonderful question. To answer it though, I have to distinguish between long-term mating and short-term mating. Uh, and in long-term mating, it gets very complicated. So, as as a uh, <laughs> that's uh, one way to put it, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, well. So, so I teach a course in in human sexuality at at University of Texas at Austin, and um, one of the things this is back in the days when there were chalkboards, and and you and you taught with a piece of chalk and wrote things on the board. Um, and what I would do is I would ask the class, I'd teach this large class, one to 200. I'd say, what do women want? Tell me what, all the things women want in a long-term mate. Mm -hmm. And so I would start at one end of the blackboard. There were like five blackboards. And they'd say, well, I want a mate who's 
who's kind, who's understanding, who's intelligent, who's healthy, who's got a good sense of humor, who shares my values. And, and I just go, and I fill out five blackboards and then run out of space. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, uh, first, it's a large number of characteristics that people want. And then specific magnitudes of those characteristics or, or amounts. So I say, you, you want a maid who's, say, generous with mm-hmm. their resources. And they say, yes, I want maids who's generous with their resources. So I said, so like a guy who, and this is in women's maid selection, the guy who at the end of every month gets his paycheck and gives it to the uh, local wino um, on, on the drag. And I said, well, no, not that generous. Yeah. Okay, generous toward me, right. <laughs> not not indiscriminately generous. And so you want a maid who's um, ambitious, you know, who's a, a hard worker. Yes, but but not a workaholic, you know. And so uh, and, and so then you get to interactions among different characteristics. So there's um, a lot of characteristics, a lot of variables in this very complex optimization problem for women. Yes, that's right. And more so for women than for men. So and then, when then I turn to the men and I say, well, what do men want? And then I, I run out of space after about a blackboard and a half because yeah. they, they can't think of anything else. Uh, so the women. Think- I think there's a lot of explanations for that. <laughs> Besides the, the lack of the number of variables, it's also, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, that's interesting. So what, what's the difference between the variables? So on the men's side, what are the variables? Well, there, in long-term mate selection, there, there's a lot of overlap. Sure. Okay. Um, so things like intelligence, um, good health, sense of humor, um, a, an agreeable personality, someone who's not too neurotic or moody or, or emotionally volatile. Uh, but there are key differences as well. And the differences stem from, they basically fall on the delimited number of domains. So for men, it's physical attractiveness, physical appearance, and youth are the two real big ones, okay? Men prioritize those more than women do. And so that's why you have phenomena such as uh, this, uh, quote, love at first sight, where sometimes men can walk into a party and they see a woman across the room and they say, that, I'm going to marry that woman. That's the woman for me. Women very rarely do that. Now, most men do, don't do that either, but men are much more inclined to fall in love at first sight. That's because they prioritize physical appearance. Why? Because physical appearance provides that this wealth of information about a woman's fertility status. And this is from, from an evolutionary perspective, from a purely reproductive perspective. In, in a business school, they would call it job one. Job one is you have to select a fertile mate. So those who, in our evolutionary past, who selected infertile mates, so postmenopausal women, for example, um, did not become our ancestors. So we are all the descendants of this long and unbroken chain of ancestors who, all of whom succeeded in selecting a fertile mate. But fertility cannot be observed directly. Uh, It can use some cues. Exactly. And And there are cues that are probabilistically related to this underlying quality of fertility that we can't observe directly. And we're doing that computation in our heads. What about men? What do men want for short-term mating? Well, so for short-term mating, um, for both sexes, uh, physical appearance uh, looms very large. So, so, in, so women are, no, physical attractiveness 
and appearance, they're important for women in long-term mate selection. So I don't want to um, mislead anyone on that. They're just not as important as they are for men. Um, and so a lot of characteristics come for women before physical appearance, physical attractiveness. Um, so women, so if we switch to women, what do women want? They want also physical appearance for short-term mating, yeah. phys physical attractiveness. What else? Uh, well, some cues that represent physical attractiveness that maybe represent health. Well, well here's this is your. It's, I'm learning a lot here. Yeah. Well, so but you're you're also asking a very interesting question about uh, what is uh, controversial within the evolutionary psychology um, field, right? Right, and not totally resolved. So that's why you're on the sixth edition of the book and there, there could be a lot more editions <laughs> yeah, coming. Yeah, I revise it every four years or so because there's four years of um, new interesting work and so it deserves updating. But the traditional, I should say, uh, uh, answer to your question is that women go for good genes, cues to good genes in the short term and cues to resources in the long term. And this has been a hypothesis that advocated, not, I didn't come up with this this one, um, by uh, Steve Gangestad, a former student of mine, Marty Hazleton, Randy Thornhill, and some other um, very smart players in the field. And, um, and what they used as uh, markers of good genes are things like symmetrical features uh, and masculine features. So strong jawline, high shoulder to hip ratio, um, you know, uh, other other sorts of masculine features. But I started to doubt this explanation for what women want in the short term um, because of some other findings. So for for women, a lot of short term mating is not one night stand mating. So, but rather it's. Uh, affair mating. So uh, so if you ask the question, why do women have affairs? So let's restrict the question for the moment. My colleagues would argue, well, women have affairs because they're trying to get good genes from one guy while in, they're getting investment from the regular partner, mm -hmm. the, the husband. Okay. But the problem is that when women have affairs, uh, 70 plus percent tend to fall in love with or become attached to their affair partner. Now, uh, sorry, what percentage? Seventy? Uh, yeah, seventy. Some large majority. Yeah, seventy percent wow. or, or, or more. In contrast to men, where it's more like thirty percent of men who have affairs fall in love with or become attached to their affair partner. So, but from a design perspective, um, an engineering perspective, if you will. Uh, that's a disastrous thing if you're just trying to get good genes. So you're trying to retain the investment of one guy yeah. while getting good genes surreptitiously from this, you know, guy who presumably has more. Falling in love with him, becoming attached, that's that's not a feature you want. Yeah, it's bad engineering. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's bad engineering. And so, and so I developed a, a, an alternative uh, hypothesis that I call the mate switching hypothesis, which is that um, affairs are one way in which women, um, divest themselves of a, uh, a cost-inflicting partner or a partner who uh, things aren't working out well with, and it's a way to either transition back into the mating market or to, 
or to trade up in in the mating market. Uh, and and so and anyway, so these are these are probably the two leading hypotheses about why why women have affairs. And I am putting my money on the mate switching hypothesis. Um, my uh, esteemed colleagues are putting their money on the good genes hypothesis. But I think the evidence for the good genes hypothesis is starting to um, look shakier than initially. Uh, well, this is a heated proposed. debate. I mean, mate switching sounds like a, so, so from a game theory perspective, from an engineering perspective, it seems to make a lot more sense, unless you put a lot of value in lifelong, sort of in the long-term mating, uh, some kind of value in the um, lifelong singular relationship, like monogamy. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we do psychologically. Maybe there's a big evolutionary advantage to that. And we we do, but we also know that divorce is, you know, um, and breakups are are also common and occur in all cultures. So yeah. um, that's, we're just not very good at this thing. Well, either we're not good at the mate selection, such that uh, maybe we're we're not incorporating uh, all the variables well, or we're just not good at monogamy, period, from an evolutionary perspective. Well, I think there, that's... <laughs> raises, Another debate. No, that raises an interesting set of questions. So I think that, I mean, one issue is is longevity. So, I mean, we didn't live to be 70, 80 uh, years old in over 99% of human evolutionary history. And so we didn't necessarily evolve to be mated monogamously with one person for decades and decades and decades. Uh, but I also think that um, long-term pair bonding is a critical strategy, but mate switching is also a critical strategy. So if you have a mate, for example, who um, uh, becomes cost-inflicting or becomes uh, sufficiently debilitated or who... Um, suffers uh, an injury such that like in hunter-gatherer societies where the mate can no longer hunt, can no longer provide resources for their kids and, and, and the woman, this becomes, this becomes a problem. And so, uh, and so I think that we have adaptations to mate switch and to divest ourselves from some partners and trade up in the mating market under certain conditions. So, okay. And those conditions will differ for men and women. What are some of the cues in terms of what women want? Um, you know, I go to the gym. It's a, a, a hotly contested debate. You said evolutionary psychology, and this is uh, in the uh, bro psychology forums that I visit uh, multiple times a day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what What's the most important cue of appearance for guys? Um, what muscle group is the most important to work on? Do, do well, women care about biceps is what I'm asking. In terms of physical appearance, um, uh, a, a good um, shoulder to hip ratio, so relatively wide shoulders relative to hips um, is, is one. Women tend to prefer men who are uh, physically fit and well-toned, but not muscle bound so like if you go to oh, i don't know some like those early uh, when arnold schwarzenegger was doing the miss mr whatever it was contest mm -hmm. you see women don't find those attractive the, the extremely muscle bound guys but they like uh, a guy who's physically fit 
high shoulder to hip ratio. Uh, they like guys who are physically taller than they are, mm-hmm. um, and guys who are a bit above average in in height. So if the average, so if uh, you know the average is I don't know five nine, five ten, and out there for humans, depending on the culture, women prefer a, an inch or two taller than that. Um, so, um, so shoulders, height, dad bod, what, what, what's that about? <laughs> why don't, why, why do you want a dad bod? What, why do you, what, what, uh, why, why not? How do I define dad what, bod? What is a dad bod? Dad bod is not muscle bound. Okay. So out of a, shape. A little, no, 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 just a little bit, a uh, little bit of, uh, a cushion for the pushing. I don't know what the kids <laughs> call it these days, uh, but just a little bit, a little bit of, of fat. So what's why do do they not want uh, guys to be obsessed with their body? Is that or is that some evolutionary thing? Yeah, I think that um, women might interpret a guy who is so obsessed with his body that he's. Uh, they might view that as a sign of narcissism. Yes, um, and that's not a good trait. <laughs> uh, what about like cultures where? large sort of overweight men are valued is that how do you explain like how much can we override the evolutionary desires with our sort of cultural fashions of the day that maybe represent other desirable aspects like wealth well wealth is uh, resources have always been important um especially to women so is a man able to acquire resources and is he willing to dispense them to her and her kids? So that's always important. In traditional cultures, that boils down to hunting skills. So if um, so, I asked a uh, colleague, friend, Kim Hill, who's uh, probably the world's leading expert on the Aceh of Paraguay, and uh, and you ask him, like, what, what leads to high status in the Aceh in males? Hunting skills. That's, that's nice. the, the one thing the one thing, the big variable. And that's resources. And that's resources. Now, what's what's interesting about modern culture is we have cash economies, <laughs> but cash economies are relatively recent. Um, and, you know, historically, there's over the vast uh, 99% of human evolutionary history, you weren't able to stockpile resources in the way that you mm-hmm. are today. Um, although there are, in- interestingly, certain ways you can do it. So, so like, you you kill a large game animal, okay? You bring it back, you get some status points because you give some to your family, you, you can share it more widely with the group, et cetera. Um, but, um, but it's gonna go bad, right? You can't just say, I'm gonna keep this carcass around for the next several months, okay? But, and, and I, think, okay, I think it's a Steve Pinker who might have used, coined this phrase that they, they store the meat in the bodies of other people. And so, for example, they store it in their friends. So, you know, um, hunting success is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hit or miss kind of thing. So you might come back empty-handed four times out of five, but and but when you do, you share your meat with others, and then when, you know, and then they reciprocate by sharing their meat with you. And so, and so you can store resources in the bodies of other people, which is, I think, an interesting way to think about it. But that can only go so far. And when you have cash economies, you have both the ability to stockpile resources, but also this kind of explosion in um, inequality of resources. And that's 
evolutionarily recent. What about, now this is the difference between the Huberman, the excellent Huberman Lab podcast that you did that people should listen to. He is a brilliant scientist, a um, sort of uh, a, a rigorous analyst of what is true in the scientific community, also helps you with great advice on how to live. Now, in contrast to that, I am a, um, a terrible, uh, <laughs> uh, almost idiotic level journalist. So this is what you have to deal with. Another thing that people talk about that women care about is penis size. Does penis size matter for women in sexual selection? Well, um, there's controversy about that. In the uh, evolutionary psychology community? Well, I, Is there not, papers on penis size? I wouldn't say uh, scientific papers, so speculations uh, sure. uh, about- So not and, in nature or, or in science. Yeah, yeah, no, nothing, nothing that I've seen there. Um, you know, I, I think that there's individual variability. Um, so uh, this is something that comes up again. You know, when I ask women in the class, my classes, you know, what do women want? Some will say, you know, a large penis. Uh, but I think there's variability um, in in that preference, and it also might depend in part on the variability in the woman's anatomy. So, um, do you think there's something fundamental in terms of evolutionary psychology, in terms of evolution, or is this a quirk of culture that's current, that's maybe somehow connected to pornography or something like that? Yeah, my my guess is it's it's something that's uh, perhaps a quirk of culture or or something that is evolutionarily recent. Um, but um, but but I don't know. I mean, it's it's a topic that hasn't been explored much. I've never done work on it. And well, somebody uh, should do a PhD. Uh, sort of some archaeologist should do a PhD on the history of human civilization and, and its uh, valuation of penis size and and the correlation of penis size to the value of the male. Okay, moving on. Another absurd question to, in terms of what men want. Again, definitely not a Huberman Lab podcast question. <laughs> Why do men, let's say a large fraction of men, love boobs? Well, uh, I, I think that... Uh, You're one of the it, uh, most cited evolutionary psychologists, and this is what you signed up for, this, this, these kinds <laughs> but, of questions. Questions like this, yeah, yeah. Well, so again, this is something I haven't studied directly, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, scientifically, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but um, but yeah, there's been some work on that, and and it's uh, another cultural quirk, perhaps. Uh, no, I don't think it's a cultural quirk because I think it's the uh, the shape that matters a lot because shape is going to be a, a cue to fertility, uh, and so one of the things that humans are attracted to in the opposite sex is sexually dimorphic features and breasts are a sexually dimorphic feature. What's dimorphic mean? Uh, difference between, difference in morphology between males and females. Got it. Um, Diming to morphic morphology. Uh, so, um, and, and women don't develop uh, breasts until um, puberty or po post-puberty. Uh, and and so, uh, as a sexually dimorphic characteristic, we tend to be attracted to that. Same is true, with, by the way, with the waist-to-hip ratio that we mentioned earlier. Uh, prior to puberty, males and females have very similar waist-to-hip ratios. But at puberty, 
um, there's a differential uh, hip development and fat deposition that creates a sexual dimorphism uh, with respect to waist hip ratio. And so again, that's men are attracted to this waist hip ratio. No man consciously says that. They find this woman more attractive than that woman. They don't think, ah, she has a waist hip ratio of 0.70. That's That's exactly what I do, but (laughs) most men, most men, yes. Yes. Uh, So isn't that fascinating that we just build these entire industries of fashion and what we find beautiful around these kinds of ideas? And we just... And then not just not just fashion, and then we build uh, we have uh, sociological tensions about whether we should care about this kind of thing or not. There's there's battles in that space. It's it's like they seem so simple. It's just the human body, and we wear clothes. First of all, that's that's a funny thing. What what's the why are we wearing clothes? What's the shame aspect? Yeah. of covering up the body. Is that another feature, or is that what is that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question, and I, I don't know. It's just like hiding uh, ovulation. Maybe that's another hiding. Like uh, maybe hiding is a great game theoretic thing to play with because it can give you it can give the powerless more power. By covering, well, well, maybe. well. I think there are a few things. So one is the sort of arbitrary features of fashion, and then the other is the aspects of fashion that attempt to um, magnify our, what is inherent in our evolved standards of beauty. Sure. So, for example, um, women tend to wear things that accentuate their waist hip ratio. Um, uh, so, I mean, historically, those um, in the old days, corsets, for example, cinch the woman's uh, waist. Um, uh, and you wouldn't see fashion develop in a way that made a woman seem um, old, unhealthy, um, uh, pockmarked, uh, signs of open sores or lesion there there are certain domains um, design spaces that you wouldn't that that no culture would develop um so but there are arbitrary features but sometimes they're not entirely arbitrary or they're arbitrary at one level of description but not at another so for example fashion tends to be linked with status and that's why it constantly changes the high status people start wearing a certain type of clothing, uh, and then when the lower status people imitate them, then they have to shift to signal their status. And so I think the fashion and clothing is in part linked to status. So this is not you talking, this is me. I just wanna make a, a, a statement, a profound statement, that I think yoga pants, now this is broadly speaking, <laughs> but yoga pants is one of the greatest inventions in human history. There's fire and yoga, <laughs> and I'm just gonna leave it there. I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, and I have uh, female friends that talk about how comfortable yoga pants are, which is what I'm referring to when I say it's one of the greatest inventions because comfort in fashion is really, um, really important to me. Let me ask about sort of the sociological aspect of this. So I've um, I've talked to Mark Zuckerberg, who uh, the Meta, who's the CEO, founder of Facebook, and now Meta, and that owns Instagram. Right, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he uh, he uh, holds the American flag and likes the water. Anyway, um, so there's been criticisms of social networks and so on. 
And I just want to ask you about the broader question here, that there's a object, objectification of the human body in the media, and that creates standards for young women, for young men perhaps, but more young women. Yeah. Um, you mentioned to the cruelty that women can have towards each other in terms yeah. of, well, let's, you know, cruelty is already a moral judgment. Just you've, you've made a statement about the fact that women, uh, seem to point out imperfections in other women. Right. Um, do you think it's a problem in our modern society that we objectify each other in this way? Do you think this is this is a fundamental aspect of our biology that we need to um, um, suppress versus celebrate? Yeah. Just like we might suppress our natural desire for violence if such exists um, in modern society? Well, a couple couple thoughts on that. I, I think it is um, damaging, um, the uh, the fact that uh, so many images are displayed in, in social media. And so um, what I would say is that there's what's called in, in the field uh, an evolutionary mismatch. So we evolved in the context of small group living where there was mate competition but your competitors were a small number of other potential individuals. And so people do comparisons. Um, okay, but now what we have is uh, this bombardment, bombardment of our visual system and our sexual psychology and our mating psychology with, with thousands and thousands of images uh, that are not at all representative of who our actual competition is in 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 the mating domain, and so I think that um, and, and there, there's actually evidence on this that um, uh, uh, Baz Luhrmann actually said something like this in his uh, sunscreen song. I don't know if you ever heard that, but it's like a set of it's wonderful like string of advice song about advice. But he says, uh, "Oh yeah 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 okay sorry he says, yeah he says uh, don't read beauty magazines that will only make you feel ugly, you know." And I think that there's truth to that that is especially with with women they look at all these images and you know of course they're photographed they're photoshopped uh they're they're highly selected and and not at all representative and so women compare themselves to that so i think this social comparison is an evolved feature of humans i mean males do it females do it but it's exacerbated in the modern environment and wildly evolutionarily mismatched ways. And so I think I think that it is it is destructive, it's harmful. There's evidence that um, it hurts women's self-esteem. So here's just another uh, factoid or fact, if you will, that at least in Western cultures, uh, males and females have uh, roughly the same overall average levels of self-esteem. But once uh, puberty hits, all of a sudden women's self-esteem starts to drop. And I think it's because when they enter mate competition, then they start um, uh, elevating the importance they attach to physical appearance. And then, as you point out, the the tremendous objectification that it saturates social media and media in general is um, it, it's damaging and harmful. I don't know how to undo it, though. I don't know how to design a society that um, that undoes that. Well, one of the ways we undo things, just like you pointed out, is we use words. When we manipulate 
society, we manipulate social and status hierarchies using our words for ill, mm -hmm. and we can do the same for good. And that's why there's a <laughs> lot of clickbait articles about, uh, you know, Instagram, um, hit, you know, leading to a lot of suffering amongst uh, teenage girls and all those kinds of things. Um, the, I'm criticizing the clickbait nature and not the contents of the articles. But, you know, and those articles hopefully become viral in a way that makes us rethink about how we build social networks that kind of allow us to too easily misrepresent how we look when we are quote unquote influencers and what yeah. mental effect it has on the, um, on young people that look up to those influencers. But I guess you're, it's not the objectification fundamentally that's the problem. It's the inaccurate, it's the fake news. It's the yeah, fake news, misrepresentation. You, you still objectify uh, the male body, the female body, but you do so uh, while misrepresenting the actual truth. And, and so you're moving the average, you're moving the standard representation of what a male should look like, what a woman should look like. And uh, the dishonesty is the problem, not the objectification. Here's just one other interesting empirical finding on that, and it has to do with another dimension that I think is harmful, and, and that's the thinness dimension. Uh, and so if you, and these are studies originally done by Paul Rosen, but they've been replicated, where if you ask men, okay, what is your ideal figure in a woman? And so they have these, say, nine figures that vary from very, very thin to average to, to plump. Men give it the midpoint. They say the, the, the midpoint is in relative thinness or plumpness is what I value. And you ask women, what is your ideal body type for you? They give it, they say thinner. But then if you ask them, what do you think males ideal body type is, they put it in exactly the same spot that they put their own ideal, which is thin. And so there's actually an inaccurate perception of how thin men desire women to be. Uh, and I think that's partly exacerbated by the, the fashion industry where the, the models are often rail thin and, you know, they're the lure is that clothes hang better on thin models and then on TV they say you gain 15 pounds over what you really are or whatever. Yeah. But for whatever reason, women misperceive how thin men want them to be. And so you have, this is another huge sex difference, is uh, eating disorders. Um, anorexia, uh, for example, bulimia, uh, binging, purging, where these, these disorder, eating disorders are nine to 10 times more common in women than in men. Can I just take a small tangent? Because it, it was such a beautiful, uh, the sunscreen song, such a beautiful one, if I can read some of the words from it. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great song. For people, you should check it out. It's, it's called Everybody's Free to Wear a Sunscreen. I guess it's actually a speech to a class. I don't know if that's artificial or real, but it's it's a speech that gives advice. And it goes, ladies and gentlemen of the class of 97. I just remember it even now, those, those words. Wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. Long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proven by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. 
Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they're faded. But trust me, in 20 years, you look back at the photos of yourself and recall in a way that you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. Don't worry about the future or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubble gum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be the things that never crossed your worried mind. The kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Saying, don't be reckless with other people's hearts. Don't put up with the people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind. The race is long and in the end, it's only with yourself. Remember compliments you receive, forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. <laughs> Keep your old love letters, throw away your old bank statements, stretch. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. For me, that's true for 50, 60, and 70-year-olds, year, year honestly. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you'll marry. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40. Maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. So are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Dance, even if you have nowhere to do it but in your own living room. Read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines that will only make you feel ugly. Get to know your parents. You never know when they'll be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're your best link to your past and the people most likely to stick with you in the future. Understand that friends come and go, but a precious few who should hold on. Work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle, for as older you get, the more you need the people you knew when you were young. Live in New York City once. I actually took this advice. This is fascinating advice. I, I remember this advice well. Uh, it's broadly applied. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise. Politicians will philander. You too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, <laughs> politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. Don't expect anyone else to support you. Maybe you have a trust fund. Maybe you'll have a wealthy spouse. But you never know when either one might run out. Never mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Be careful whose advice you buy, but be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. 
but trust me on the sunscreen. <laughs> so th right. this is, uh, so thank you for allowing me to read it. It's almost sentimental for me. I don't know when I first heard it, um, but there's a few pieces of advice in that, you know, uh, similar to like the poem, If by Roger Kipling, um, there's some deep truths when you step back and look at it all. And also the, um, the places where you live, because I I, I uh, lived for a time in, I guess, Northern California with Google and so on. Yeah. And one of the reasons I had to leave is I was becoming, I felt I was becoming soft. Um, this, this is my own personal experience. And the same is true for the, uh, um, the cities of the East. They can, if you're not careful, make you hard because everybody's super busy and rushing around and, and uh, there's just a buzz to the city, which is exciting. It's empowering, but it can, it can, it can change you in ways. And so, uh, it's one of the reasons I'm here in Austin. I yeah. fell in love well, with the city because yeah, it's, such it's, a, nice it's balance a great above. move. And uh, yeah, I've I've lived on both coasts as well, um, Boston area and then uh, Berkeley, California. So, um, so I'm familiar with both. How'd you end up in Austin? As a, uh, as a small aside. Well, uh, well, I got I, I got my undergraduate degree here, uh, and then left for twenty years and uh, migrated around. Uh, so went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley for my PhD, Harvard for my first job, University of Michigan, and then there, a job opened up um, at University of Texas uh, for an evolutionary psychologist, and so um, they wanted me. Fortunately, so I was very happy to. So I've always loved Austin. I mean, it's uh, yeah, the love never died. It was there. Yeah, yeah, it's a great <laughs> town. I was glad that I left. So and experienced well both coasts and also the Midwest. But um, happy to be back in Austin. Let me ask a difficult question. Now we did pretty good with some difficult questions already, but there are people in this world today who believe that gender is purely a social construct. You, I think, are not one of those people. To you, what are the differences between men and women? How much of those differences are nature and how much is nurture? I guess if we, you're asking the question um, morphologically or psychologically, I, I assume you're asking psychologically. The question is what it is. And the answer, sometimes the questions don't contain with them the trajectory you take with the answer, right? So I think I was asking both, and the fact that both are a thing is an interesting thing. Yes. So you wrote a book, textbook, I should say, Evolutionary Psychology, right? Yes. Those, both of those words are in the book title. Psychology, right. that's the human mind. Yes. Yeah. So how much of gender, how much of sex is the human mind? and how much of it is the biology? The way that I phrase it, so, so I, I don't like um, sort of dividing the world into two categories, things that are biological versus things that are not biological. Um, uh, so the biology is actually defined as the study of life and life processes. And so at that sort of abstract level, everything we do is biological, including culture and our capacity for culture, which I think is an evolved capacity that humans have. Um, when you get to the issue of sex and, and gender, I mean, one cut at your question is, 
uh, are there universal psychological sex differences? Um, and the answer to that question is, yes, there are some. So, for example, well, and this is in, in one of your areas of specialty, uh, engineering, um, one of the interesting things is that uh, it's called the people's thing dimension. So do you want an occupation? Do you want a job that involves um, people, social interaction, or are you happy with a job that just involves things, mechanical objects or computer code or, or whatever? And this is one of the largest psychological sex differences that, that exists, and it's true in every culture. So uh, in terms of, I don't know, um, magnitude of effects, it's a, an effect size of um, more than a standard deviation difference between the means um, on this psychological sex difference. And so one of the interesting things is, so if you go to places like, go to the most um, gender egalitarian cultures in the world, so places like Sweden uh, or Norway, uh, which are explicitly gender egalitarian and, and, and are truly in many, many ways, and, but you allow people freedom of choice, uh, this, some of these sex differences actually get larger. The psychological sex differences and also assortment into different occupational uh, choices. Um, now, but this, this is not something that I study. I study mating and the sex differences if you ask what are the where in what domains are the sex differences the largest, it turns out they occur within the domain of mating and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So our evolved sexual psychology, our evolved mating psychology is to some degree sexually dimorphic. Okay, with the uh, very important asterisk that we're talking about overlapping distributions. So there are some things that, so if you look at human morphology, um, we talked about breasts earlier. Women have evolved functional breasts that's functional for lactation. Um, men don't. So there's no, no amount of um, uh, culture or social coercion can cause men to have lactating breasts. Uh, psychologically, we don't see dimorphism that extreme where something is literally present in one sex and totally absent in the other. So there's overlap in the distributions. So I mentioned earlier that in the mating domain, men, men more than women on average prioritize physical appearance, physical attractiveness, relative youth. Women on average prioritize resources, resource acquisition, qualities that lead to resource acquisition like status, ambition, industriousness, and so forth. But there's overlap in the distribution. So some women place the total priority on how physically attractive the guy is and uh, some men view that as as irrelevant, and 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 uh, so, so the the point that I'm making is that there are there are psychological sex differences that um, make some people uncomfortable. Um, but you know, it's one of these things where I'm a scientist. Uh, I'm not a political advocate, uh, um, and so I'm I adhere to the empirical data on empirical data are very strong in these domains. So with respect to sex differences in the mating domain and sexuality and things we haven't even talked about, like desire for sexual variety and sex differences in the whole uh, desire for short-term mating, uh, huge sex differences there. 
Uh, and these have been documented universally in all cultures. So, um, okay, now, are there, uh, it, are there things that are culture-specific or social-cultural overlays onto these fundamental psychological sex differences? Absolutely. Um, but th there's also an issue of... Um, Kind of levels of analysis, levels of abstraction, and how closely you look at the phenomenon. So, quick analogy: language. So you say, well, um, in China they speak Chinese, in Korea they speak Korean, in Brazil they speak Portuguese. Say, so look how culturally infinitely variable languages are, which they are at that level. But do humans have a universal human innate grammar? And I think the evidence points to answer yes to that. At least that's what Steve Pink or Paul Bloom and some other uh, uh, others argue. So at one level ab of abstraction, things are infinitely culturally variable, or at least highly culturally variable. At another level of abstraction, there's universality. So here's one example in the mating domain uh, of this. So Margaret Mead, who is a famous um, anthropologist, uh, uh, studied the Samoan Islanders, and she or, tried to argue basically for the infinite malleability of things like gender and gender roles and so forth. She and she said, "Look at this culture. The in this culture, it's the men who paint their face, uh, whereas you know in Western cultures, it's the women who wear makeup and so forth." Well, it turns out if you if you look carefully at the culture where men paint their face, they're painting a, a war paint. On their face, they're not. They're not putting on makeup to enhance their cues to youth and cues to health. They're putting on war paint to make themselves more ferocious or to demarcate what tribe they're in, what coalition they're in. And so, at sort of one level of abstraction, you could say, well, there's high cultural variability in application of face paint, but on another level, there's really a fundamental functional difference in the purpose to which the paint is applied. Yeah, and then you can abstract the paint away. And I mean, fashion in general is just magnify the characteristics that are appealing to the opposite sex. Because war paint is probably, you know, it is, you're magnifying the characteristics that are appealing to the, uh, the other sex. So ability to gain resources, maintain resources is, um, Status, uh, status in the hierarchy, all those kinds of things. Well, well, that's that's part of it. But I think another part has to do with, in, in that case, male coalitions. So we we were, we're in a, a intense. This is another unique characteristic. I don't know if you got into this with Richard Rangham. I don't remember you talking about this, but uh, he's written a lot about male coalitionary psychology and humans cooperate uh, to an extraordinary de degree in forming coalitions for the purpose of competing with rival coalitions. And so you even see this with, um, well, you see it in the sports sports arenas with, with team sports, you know, where this team wears a different uniform than that team. Uh, they have different mascot, et cetera. And so part of that is um, male coalitionary psychology. Well, you so you write, again, so returning to the textbook, now people should know you wrote a lot of incredible book that is maybe more accessible than the evolutionary psychology textbook, but. In, oh, in, so, uh, the, the evolutionary psychology textbook is very accessible. So yes, it is extremely accessible, but yeah. that's not your thing. And on Amazon, you can't, you know, 
it, it's a pain. It's a textbook. It's not, you know, it's it's a little bit more of a pain to purchase, which I did. I, I bought all your books. They're amazing. Uh, we'll talk about uh, a bunch of them. But in terms of coalitions, in uh, chapter 12 of your evolutionary psychology textbook, you write about status, prestige, and social dominance. So how do hierarchies of status and social dominance emerge in human society? And uh, what's the value of status in sexual selection? We talked about uh, cues of individual health and all that kind of stuff, but what, what the heck's the purpose of status? Why, why does it matter if I'm the big boss? Well, uh, it, it matters because status is, uh, influences your access to resources and your ability to influence other people within your, within your group. And so um, this is part of the reason why women prioritize a man's social status, uh, how he is viewed in the eyes of others, because high-status men have access to, to more resources. Um, it's interesting that you ask about that because um, I've uh, just published, this is with uh, Patrick Durkee, a former graduate student of mine. We published a couple papers on precisely this issue where we looked at what we call human status criteria. That is, what are the things that lead to increases or decreases in status? And we did this in 14 different cultures. And we found some things that are universal, but also some things that are sex differentiated. Um, uh, and uh, so universal things like people value uh, trustworthiness, they value um, intelligence, wisdom, knowledge. So it's even if you go across cultures, uh, even to the small scale cultures that we alluded to earlier, uh, there are these wise, wise people, wise men, wise women in the culture who have uh, people go to for advice, for wisdom. Uh, and so having a wide range of knowledge is is a universal status criterion. Uh, and there's some things that are sex differentiated, and they often fall into the mating domain as well. This is where mating and status are interestingly related to each other in that um, successful mating increases your status but having high status also gives you access to more desirable mates. Um, and so... <laughs> the game gets harder and harder, always. So wait, uh, so are we talking about what are the characters? What, what's the role of power and wealth, those kinds of things? So you said wisdom is universal. Yeah. What about wealth and power? Yeah, well, uh, well, um, I guess it depends on what you mean by power. So I think of power as the ability to, to influence a large uh, number of people. Yeah. So, um, and this is one of the interesting things about the fact that cash economies are so are, are evolutionarily very recent, in that we people are like so. So I guess recently, or it's about to happen, uh, that um, Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter. Okay, yeah, where say happen. Is it happening already? Yeah. Okay. So they say that like the the wealthiest or one of the wealthiest men on earth has now purchased the most influential media platform uh, on earth, and so uh, obviously you or I couldn't um, compete with Elon Musk and uh, for the purchase of Twitter. And so uh, the fact that cash economies allow the stockpiling of unprecedented amounts of wealth 
produces these tremendous power differentials that that didn't exist in in over most of human evolutionary history. Um, so their wealth is power, but you can also be um, power can be attained through other ways. Yeah, but 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 I would say that the interesting thing about wealth is that it's an infinitely fungible resource. So you can use it and translate it into many, many other things, like buying a, buying Twitter or buying a big house or or even getting mates or an artificial uh, in the, I don't know if you want to get into that, that at all, but you know, they have these uh, sex dolls or uh, mm -hmm. virtual virtual reality sex that some people are, are are developing. If you have enough resources, you can purchase things like that. So you can trans you can translate wealth into a variety of other tangible things in ways that that you couldn't ancestrally. So, um, so that's one really powerful thing, but th there is still power that's correlated, but not uh, intricately connected to we wealth, which is like being leaders of nations. Like technically the president of the United States salary is not very high. Right. <laughs> Presidents. And, and then you look, you go outside of that and, and to the half of the world that's living under authoritarian regimes, you have dictators and there's, um, those, those are very powerful, usually men. Uh, and presumably there's some value there in the mating selection aspect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's not by chance that um, most of them are men. Um, and this is gonna sound strange or, and hopefully not offensive to people, but um, if you ask the question, why are why is it the case that men are in positions of power? Um, so much more so than than women. Well, in part, it can be traced to women's mate preferences. So it's one of the sex differences that women have, over evolutionary time, preferred men who had power, status, resources, um, et cetera. And what that has done is it's created selection pressure on men to attach a high motivational priority to clawing their way up the status hierarchy. Um, and and uh, studies of uh, time allocation distribution show this, where men are, they're more willing to sacrifice their, their friends, their grandmother, their kin or whatever, to claw their way up to the top of status hierarchies. Women, much less so. Women uh, spend more effort maintaining relationships with their kin, with their friends, their friend networks and so forth. And so, um, and, and so in a way, uh, so, so you could say not only are you, uh, not only are men in positions of power more than women, now you're blaming women for why they are. And it's not, it's not a matter of blame, but I think that, that what I just outlined is, is an essential part of the causal process, the coevolution of women's mate preferences with men's motivational priorities. How much do you think these mating strategies underlie all of human civilization? Like what motivates us? Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, Becker with denial of death. Like, what? Why do we build castles and bridges and rockets and, and the internet and all of this? Is it some complex mush, or is it underneath it all? Are we all just trying to get laid? Uh, well, I wouldn't reduce it to something 
quite as trying to get laid. Um, but I, I think I think mating is 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 certainly part of it. Um, I wonder how big of a part because so with with uh, Ernest Becker, the idea is that we're all trying to achieve an illusion of immortality. Yeah. So we're trying to create something that outlasts us, and therefore we create bigger and bigger things in societies and bridges and yeah. Well, I think what, what's what's missing from Becker's analysis is, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's, an, it's, an, it's a fascinating book to read, Denial of Death. But what's missing is that I think that the reason that, and, and, and again, I think it's more men than women. I think there's a sex difference on this that men. Uh, want to build a, a a lasting legacy because that will in turn affect their lineage. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, although I I do now Woody Allen is out of favor, but I remember this quote from him. He said he said he, he didn't want to achieve immortality through his work. He wanted to achieve immortality by not dying. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. The the funny ones are also uh, deeply flawed often. Staying on the topic of sex differences in a very different way, perhaps. So dominance and submissiveness, something you've also written about. What's the role of that inside relationships about this human dynamic of dominance and submissiveness? Um, is that a feature or a bug? So the, the stable state that these dynamical systems arrive at, uh, is it good to have an equality within a relationship or is it good to have differences in a relationship? Uh, are you talking about romantic relationships or just in human relationships? Romantic, probably, because unless it could be generalized to human relationships, perhaps it could be generalized to human relationships. I wasn't thinking that, but perhaps it could be. But let's start, start with romantic. I guess one-on-one. -on -one. I'm personally in favor of uh, equality of, on that dimension within romantic relationships. And um, in the, in, I don't talk about my personal life, uh, but, um, but I've been in relationships uh, and the best ones tend to be those where, where there's uh, equality and one person does not uh, dominate the other. Um, but, I guess what I was, the reason I ask you is in what type of relationships, because there are some um, things like coalitions where hierarchy is very important to the function of the coalition. So it, it's like you, if you're like a war coalition or something in small group warfare, you, you can't just have equality. You have to have um, leaders that are, are determining the, um, the battle plan, so to speak. Um, and so if you have, uh, you're, you're, you're attacking a neighboring group or something and everyone gets an equal say, it's, it's not going to work that way. And so we tend to um, appoint as leaders those who are, uh, it doesn't always work out well, but those who are presumably wise or good, effective leaders. And they even talk about, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, and I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, wartime leaders versus peacetime leaders. And so, again, it depends on, you know, what the goal is of the group that you are a part of. Um, and so, and so I think there is functionality and utility to a lot of our evolved psychology of status and dominance and submissiveness. 
So, for example, and, and, and you have to look at the individual psychology, and this is actually something I'm currently studying, um, again, with, with Patrick Durkee, uh, where one advantage of these status hierarchies is that you're not always battling, you know? So you determine, um, and that's why, here's another sexually demorphic aspect of our psychology, formidability assessment. So there's, there's evidence that males engage in this, you know, can I take this guy or can he take me? <laughs> Like and it's like That's a spon- the entirety of my life. Yes, it's it's like a spontaneous <laughs> assessment of of formidability, and and it also the that information is critical because that means like who you should not challenge or yeah. or who you, who you can challenge with impunity. Impunity. So, um, and and there's functionality to su- submitting uh, as well. You know, because you you defer to someone so that you don't get vanquished and you live to see another day. Uh, so, so I think we, we actually have a very rich psychology of status hierarchies and dominance and submissiveness. So especially sort of uh, violent conflict. Yes. But back to relationships. So maybe phrased another way, what is masculinity? What is femininity? Is there value inside a relationship for di- for differences? You talked about mating, mating, mating strategies with the dating stage where you're selecting the mate, but also within, you know, mating broadly defined as the entirety of the process. Are the, should those differences be magnified and celebrated, or um, sort of suppressed? I've seen enough different relationships work and I've seen enough relationships implode to say there's no there's not one size fits all on on these things. So even with respect to masculinity and femininity, um, some reduce it psychologically to two other terms, which are agency and communion. So where agency is, you know, are you instrumental, goal-oriented, um, get tasks done, et cetera. Communion is, you know, more the the love and forming connections with other people and so forth. Um, and I, I published a study a while back on uh, un, what's what are called unmitigated agency and unmitigated communion. So you, there are like good and bad aspects of agency and communion so they can go so there's toxic as they say masculinity toxic femininity you can just rephrase that saying there could be toxic agency and toxic communion yeah yeah and and so and so some elements of masculinity uh the unmitigated masculinity is uh i think terrible i was actually walking around downtown austin earlier today and just give this example and this guy um, was, um, I guess, stuck and wanted the car ahead of him to move. And all of a sudden, he screamed out of his, move your fucking car. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and, and then jumped out of his car and to a push. To me, that's, that's um, toxic masculinity, if you will. We, we don't need that, you know. Yeah, so, and by the way, as somebody who worked with cars quite a long time in terms of human interaction with semi-autonomous vehicles, it's so fascinating how the car and traffic brings out, like, the worst in human nature. 
in a sense, or maybe to rephrase that, it maybe challenges you to explore something that, uh, in terms of temper, in terms of anger, in terms of anxiety that you have been bottling it up. There's something that where the car is like a vessel for a psychological experiment of how much stress you can take. And some people, that stress is like heating, uh, is making the water boil. And it's fascinating to see what that results in. I think if you are the kind of person that explodes emotionally uh, in traffic, that means there's deeper issues to sort of confront. And it seems like the, the traffic and the car is a place where you get to confront your the shadow, Carl Jung's shadow. <laughs> There's something deep within that that we don't often fish. We're alone with ourselves and we get to see who we truly are. Yeah, well, we're, yeah, it can bring out road rage. And also there's this, um, I don't know, when you're in the vehicle, there's you have this shell around you. And so there's this feeling that you are protected from. Yes. Uh, so you could be yourself, you can be your true self in this moment. And sometimes that true self in this moment is an angry screaming person, which yeah. means you have, you have to introspect that shadow, shine a light. Let me ask you about something that's ongoing currently. It'd be fascinating to get your opinion on. So um, something I've been watching, some of the world has been watching, is the defamation trial brought by Johnny Depp against Amber Heard. Mm. Have you gotten a chance to watch any of it? Um, I haven't watched it, but I've read some reports of it. What, what's your analysis on this particular dynamic? We talked about toxicity in the space of agency and communion. What do you make of this, this relationship that's presented to the world in its raw form? You know, I don't have strong opinions on it. I think in the, this stage in the trial, we've heard from him primarily. Yes, we have not, and we should say, for people listening, in case this is published a little bit later, we have not heard from Am Amber Heard. Right. Uh, not heard from Heard. If we no. heard from Heard. We're doing that. That's going to be happening this week. I, I don't know. I, I think that I've seen, and, and this is another topic that I have studied, is uh, intimate partner violence and some of the nastier um, stuff that goes on within relationships. And I think that um, when this nasty stuff happens, sometimes sometimes it's asymmetrical, but sometimes it's symmetrical in the sense that they get into these downward spirals where one is insulting the other, or even with physical violence, one starts pushing the other, shoving the other, hitting the other, and then the other hits back. And so you get into these um, uh, cycles. And so uh, coming at one point in time, you know, in this case of, uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, you know, uh, years later and trying to disentangle what actually went on in their relationship, um, I, I, don't, I don't feel qualified even to do that. Well, it's fascinating to see. So first, I mean, I have a lot of opinions, um, particularly because I'm just a, um, a fan of Johnny Depp as a person and a fan of Johnny Depp, the actor and the kind of characters he created. The person, because maybe this is fiction, maybe this is reality, but they tend to rhyme and uh, mirror each other. But his fascination with Hunter S. Thompson 
And there's some aspect of him taking on the Hunter S. Thompson personality mm -hmm. where there's this layers upon layers of wit and humor and it's and also anxiety and darkness with the drug use and all that kind of stuff. So it's yeah. very human, very real person. And so you get to, one of the beautiful things about this trial is you get to uh, basically have a long form podcast <laughs> <laughs> and you get to reveal the complexity of this human, the humor under pressure, under uh, under stress, but also just the rawness of love, the things that love makes you do or whatever that is, What you know, whatever the things that keeps us in relationships that are toxic in that turmoil the hope the um the self delusion the 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 push and pull of longing and um fights yeah that the ups and downs whatever the yeah the roller coaster the roller coaster of it. the 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 makeup sex yeah uh, exactly you know yeah is and the questions arise whether that's a feature or a bug like why do we why are we drawn to that you mentioned in mate selection for long term mate selection um i think you said women but i think maybe both uh don't want a kind of you had scientific and eloquent words to use, but basically, basically crazy people. <laughs> you, know, you, yeah. know, you, you want somebody who's stable. Emotionally unstable, yeah. Emotionally unstable. Yeah, so. Um, uh, <laughs> but here it seems like maybe maybe we're drawn to that still, like yeah, flies to the light. Right, well, it, it can be addictive, but um, it's not good for long-term relationships. I mean, that characteristic, and, it, and there, there is a stable personality characteristic. It goes under different names, anxiety, neuroticism, emotional lability, uh, et cetera. But that's the single personality characteristic that's, that is most predictive of breakups and divorces. Yeah. Um, and and in studies that I've done, predictive of conflict in couples, people who are emotionally unstable, they just get into a lot of conflict with their partner. They create create havoc. Um, so um, and they now that can be exciting, <laughs> but bad for long term happiness. They see conflict in order to uh, uh, to attain intimacy. So conflict creates. It creates attention, yeah, and it, and like it, if you take intimacy broadly, it it's it's intimate. Well, you're like raw, fragile. You're right there. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> and I mean, there's there's one hypothesis that was put forward by um, uh, an Israeli biologist named Amos Amos Zahavi called uh, the, the the testing of a bond. And so he asked the question, like, why do people inflict costs on their partner? Like, even like kissing, yes. you're you're introducing, you know, it's a disease vector. You know, why do people do these weird things, um, inflicting costs or emotional liability is a way of inflicting costs. And what he argues is it's it's the testing of a bond. If the person's willing to tolerate, you know this level of stress, this level of cost imposition, then that means they must be very committed to me. And so, uh, and I think that's something people do in romantic relationships is they, they do test the strength of the bond. They, they test the, the commitment of the person. And I think, it's, it, I think that's a feature, not a bug, in, in, the, in the sense that, um, you, especially in the early stages of love, romantic love, we tend to overly 
romanticize and I- idealize our partner. So when there's an absence of evidence, we we impute positive values. And what you and this is one of my recommendations to pe- friends that I know is, is uh, if you're really considering a good lo- uh, long term commitment to this person. Go on vacation with them, ideally to <laughs> go, ideally to a, a foreign country where both yeah. of you are unfamiliar. Oh, I love it! Road and, trip or something like that. Yeah, yeah. so where where you you experience unexpected things, stresses, uh, you get a flat tire or w- whatever, and you encounter and you see how the person deals with stress, and you see how you deal with each other under stress. And I think that, that that's um, unless you have put stress tests on relationships, you really don't know where things stand. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. I'm a huge fan of that, like road trip, and not just late in a relationship, like day one. Yeah. <laughs> road trip, Be, not not day one, day negative one, before it even happens to see stress test, because uh, it makes everybody better. It creates intimacy or it creates, it, it, it creates or it destroys. <sighs> but, you know, on, on, on the Johnny Depp, so they they also they both suffered childhood abuse. The one one of the things that I I took away from the trial for me it was just educational. I don't get to see uh, inside as most of us maybe don't like toxic relationships or fights and so on. A lot of things that people maybe do inside of relationships and we don't get to see it presented in such a raw way. So well, one of the things I learned is that. Um, you know, in terms of partner violence, a woman too can be violent. Yeah, absolutely. That, that to me, so emotionally and physically violent, that um, I, I almost don't want to, uh, you know, Amber Heard, I mean, there's there's no limit to my dislike for that, that person in particular, uh, because, um, because clearly, to me at least, I stand with Johnny Depp. To me, that guy is full of love, and uh, but full of demons because he's drawn to whatever the chaos that's created there. But also, it's just an education for me that I, I, I tend to associate sort of men with violence and uh, toxicity and destruction inside relationships. But it was interesting to see that women too can be like directly violent yeah and men too which was also surprising to me have the capacity to stay in such a relationship and to not walk away which is what i thought is my in terms of toxic violent relationships i thought there's a male figure who will do emotional and physical mostly physical violence and then kind of manipulate the mind of the female to stay in the relationship, but that dynamic goes bo- can go both ways. Yeah, it, it does go both ways. And and I think even the emotional abuse is sometimes even worse than the physical abuse. I mean, you see that in, in studies of uh, even like childhood abuse where it's the emotional abuse that is the most damaging. What about the role of jealousy? Something you also yep. written about in a relationship is uh is that a feature or a bug? You you started to speak about it, but is is it good to be uh, jealous of your partner inside of a relationship? How does it go wrong? How the pros and cons? 
So, uh, so I've written a whole book on this uh, called the, the Dangerous Passion: um, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Sex and Love. Um, and uh, I think that uh, one cut at your question is that um, a moderate. Uh, so, first of all, I think it's it's a feature, not a bug, in in most cases. So, in the in the sense that you you have to have an adaptation that is sensitive to threats to a valued relationship, okay? Because, and I think I alluded to this earlier, that just because you're in a relationship and you're in a relationship with a desirable partner doesn't mean that, you know, you've finished solving the problems of mating that you need to solve because there are threats from the outside. So mate poachers, people who try to lure your partner away for either a sexual encounter or a more committed romantic relationship, uh, and then there's also dissatisfaction within the relationship. So your partner might become tempted to be sexually unfaithful or romantically unfaithful or emotionally unfaithful. And so and so we need humans with the evolution of long-term pair bonding, we need adaptations to guard the relationship and be sensitive to threats to the relationship. Uh, and I think jealousy is one of those. I think that's it's a key one. And now, um, that I think that uh, there are a variety of benefits to it, but also a variety of um, costs or downsides to jealousy, because we know that jealousy, male sexual jealousy, is the leading cause of spousal abuse and spousal violence, physical physical violence, probably emotional violence as well, or psychological violence. Uh, and so that's why I call it the dangerous passion. It's, it's, it's a necessary emotion, but it is also a dangerous emotion. Um, leads to homicide. Um, you know, leads to, uh, and I've studied also homicidal ideation, uh, which is intersects with this topic in that um, men, sometimes women to a lesser degree, develop homicidal ideation about people who are trying to poach their mates or who do poach their mates, uh, successfully poach their mates. So what jealousy does is it, is it alerts you to a threat to the relationship and it motivates um, checking out the source of the threat. How threatening is this? So it people tend to increase vigilance of their partner in the modern world it includes you know hacking into their cell phone or computer monitoring them, um, uh, uh, sometimes stalking them, uh, uh, but also can include positive things. So it might be that, so one trigger of jealousy is, is, is a direct threat to the relationship. But there's another more subtle trigger of jealousy, which is a mate value discrepancy. So usually when people mate, there's, they, they assort or pair up on overall mate value. So the in the American 10-point scale, the eights tend to pair up with the eights, the sixes with the sixes, the tens with the tens, and the ones with the but ones. American, is there other other scales? Uh, I, there, I, I, don't, I wonder if the, the I, numerical I, systems, well, there's a binary. I just go with binary, <laughs> zero, one. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I know, I, yeah. The eights pairs with the eights, sevens. The yeah, yeah. So in general, but there are errors in mate selection. You kind of alluded to the that issue earlier that sometimes people make errors errors in mate selection, which they do. So sometimes you think this person is well matched on mate value, but they're not. But then things change. 
So a let's say uh, they're the same. You have uh, two sixes, and then all of a sudden the woman's career takes off. All of a sudden she's, you know, uh, getting promotion. She's uh, uh, acquiring wealth. She's uh, attracting men who are of a different mate value than she previously did. Well, that triggers jealousy in the guy. Even if she swears she's going to be totally loyal and she has no signs of leaving or no signs of infidelity, a mate value discrepancy is going to trigger jealousy. Now, what can it do? Well, it can do, in the broadest sense, people can do two classes of things. They can do cost-inflicting things or benefit-providing things. So the, the man in that situation might say, okay, I need to devote more attention to my partner. I need to up my game when it comes to resource acquisition. I need to lavish more attention and gifts on her. And so there's a whole suite of benefit provisioning things that can help to reduce that mate value discrepancy. And then there's also cost inflicting things that, and, and, and humans unfortunately do both, <laughs> both sets of things. Yeah, I, there's also this, uh, maybe that's love. I notice um, the people I especially love or have a connection to, romantically or otherwise, there's a feeling like I don't deserve you. So uh, with friends, with so on, like, I mean, I tend to think that about almost everything, which is why it's a strong signal when I don't feel it that way, which is like, I can't, I'm, how lucky am I to have this? Uh, and that's a that's a that's a weird illusion of inflation of value or something. Like uh, I think that the positive effect of that is makes motivates me to be better. I guess on this one yeah. to ten scale to be higher, and you sort of kind of have to like it's a nice feature that your mind sees others that you have affection towards as higher value, and it forces you to have that like I, i'm a person that experiences jealousy and that forces me to be better yeah i get my shit together <laughs> yeah well and i and i think that the the um sometimes the best relationships are when both people feel lucky to be with the other yes, person yes exactly it's balanced that way and then that's when you in terms of jobs in terms of going to the gym all those kinds of things and um, yeah, so a little bit of jealousy. I've, I have a discussion with those people. I always wonder, there's people in relationships where like, no, no, there's no, they never experience jealousy. I wonder what that's like, because they're very successful relationships, but, uh, and I always wonder, you know, I'm currently single, so I always doubt that I know what the hell I'm doing at all. Uh, but I, I'm definitely somebody that experiences jealousy and kind of enjoys jealousy, um, like a little bit. <laughs> So, of, of like missing to me that's like you're yeah. missing the other person yeah well the longing and, for the other person and here's another uh interesting wrinkle that I, I also talk about in the book is uh sometimes people intentionally evoke jealousy in their partner uh and i think that's also a kind of testing of a bond uh <laughs> kind of issue yeah so and especially women, but I think both sexes uh, interpret a total absence of jealousy as a sign that their partner is not sufficiently committed to them or sufficiently in love with them. So if you like to say, I don't know, if you you're, you're, you go to a party with your partner and then you leave the room for some reason, you come back and your partner is passionately kissing someone else and doesn't bother you at all, yeah. um, that might be a cue to the partner that, well, maybe you're not very in love with that person are not very committed to them. 
And so, um, so it's a good way to it's a good way to test. That said, I mean, I love the term mate poaching. By the way, I believe here in Texas, mate poaching is officially illegal. So, allowed <laughs> to. One of my favorite songs by Hendrix is "Hey Joe." Um, hey Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? Yeah, and yeah, I actually I always wanted to play that song, but I get um, I start to think about guns and so on. I think it's supposed to capture a feeling. It's not actual violence. It's saying, I'm going to shoot my old lady. I caught her messing around with another man. That's um, that's a blues type of feeling, like of anger, of, um, I guess, for mate poaching, for uh, mate switching, performed by the partner, and then the uh, the frustration and the anger that's resulting in that. I, I always wondered why the violence is directed towards the partner versus the, well, the person who did the yeah it's the, it's, the other it's, male it tends to be evenly split um <laughs> so sometimes and that's i mean men especially uh when someone poaches on their mate they have homicidal fantasies towards uh, which to, well equally split toward the mate poacher yeah but 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 equally split so so it's uh um i think the the non-lethal violence uh, tends to be more directed toward the mate because it's it's and this is a uh, horrible thing of male sexual psychology, but I think part of the violence is functional in the sense that it's designed to keep a mate and prevent her from engaging in anything with um, with other with other oh, potential mate poachers. But um, uh, but people do. Uh, it's, so even I mean, so it goes back. Uh, like to the French law where they had the uh, so-called crime of passion. Mm -hmm. So if, if a husband walked in and found uh, his wife having sex with some other guy in bed and shot him, that was viewed as a crime of passion. It's still not legal, but you get, kind of get a discount yeah. uh, for it. Whereas if he, if he goes home, thinks about it for a while, then gets the gun and comes back, then that's premeditated murder. Yeah. See, to me... I guess everybody's different. To me, I have zero anger towards the partner on that situation. To me, because that's definitive proof <laughs> of disloyalty. So, like, why? What's the what's the function of the anger there? Yeah. To me, uh, all of my anger is, is towards the the guy, the poacher, right? Because right. I uh, uh, <clears throat> some of it has to do probably with the status establishing. Like, it's uh, what was the term you used the formidability yeah formidability assessment assessment yeah. and i'm like wait 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 did you just say you're more formidable than me in this situation <laughs> i want to reestablish, at least in my own mind the formidability and, and and that seems to be i guess we're all different but maybe because i roll around with guys a lot like grapple and wrestling all that kind of stuff to me to establish status is competing with other males not with the female because that that's a break of loyalty like why do what's this, what's the point of anger at this point? That's just betrayal. Well, except that a lot of it, uh, a lot of the mate poaching is is discovered, or cues to mate poaching is are discovered before the consummation of the act. So it might be oh, just like uh, the emotional cheating leading yeah, up or, to it, or a mild flirtation, sure, you know uh, things like that. And so the violence is is. Um, designed to head off the threat before it becomes real. 
Boy, aren't human relations, especially romantic ones, complicated? So, uh, very, <laughs> but that's what makes them so fascinating to study and so fun. Yes, exactly. From a science perspective, and to study from within, sort of, uh, uh, what's like Richard Rangham with the chimps, like, um, you know, be in it, <laughs> study from the end of one perspective. Uh, what do you make of polyamory? Um, so what, what the heck is, what do you make of marriage? What are your thoughts about marriage? What are your thoughts about lifelong monogamy? And what's your thoughts about polyamory, given that we've been talking about ideas of mate switching and poaching and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think that we evolved to be, I prefer the term a, a pair-bonded um, species. So pair-bonding is one of the strategies. Pair-bonded long-term mating is one of the strategies. But that doesn't necessarily mean for decades and decades or, or lifelong, because we often pair bond serially. So we'll get into a relationship that might last a year or five years and then break up and then form another relationship. So we engage in serial mating. Um, we engage in infidelity. We engaged in we engage in some short-term uh, mating. Um, and uh, so we have a, a, what I describe as a menu of mating strategies. And which particular mating strategy an individual adopts depends on a wide variety of factors. It, I think some are just kind of personal proclivities. Some depend on your mate value. So if you are an eight, a nine, or a 10, you have more options for what mating strategy you want to pursue. Um, if you're a one or a two, you're not going to be able to be polyamorous uh, in, in all likelihood. Um, there's a lot of attention to polyamory now, uh, and uh, it's unclear whether this whether there's an increase in it or whether people are just talking about it more. Uh, it is the case, and I know uh, I know several people who are in polyamorous relationships, and I've talked with them in detail about them, and jealousy is often a factor in that. And they, they describe it as kind of like a, uh, an emotion that has to be somehow tamed or dealt with in, in some way. And so, and so in polyamory, there are many different types of polyamory. So in like one type, for example, is you have a primary love partner and then some others on the side that are permitted, usually within, in consensual terms, within a, an explicit contract that the cup that the primary partners work out so it's okay if you you know I know as one couple it's okay if you do it uh, outside the city limits of Los Angeles but not within uh, some say it's okay for Thursday but I want the weekend Friday and Saturday nights to me um, uh, it's okay if there's sexual involvement but no emotional involvement. So there are different type, different strategies that people work out, and some of them are designed to try to keep jealousy at bay. Because I think it's an evolved emotion that is a natural emotion that that people experience. Um, now, interestingly, there's a there's a while we're on the, this topic, there's a sex difference therein. Um, uh, namely, if you contrast sexual jealousy with emotional jealousy, or sexual infidelity with emotional infidelity. And so we, we, in one set of studies, I put my participants, or we used to call them subjects, um, into this, what I call the Sophie's choice of the jealousy dilemmas. Where I said, imagine your partner became interested in someone else and you discover that they have had uh, 
passionate sexual intercourse with this person and they've gotten emotionally involved with them, they've fallen in love with them, which aspect of the infidelity upsets you more? And when you, and that's why I call it the Sophie's choice, both terrible choices, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but men much more likely to say the sexual infidelity is what upsets me more women it's like why even ask me it's a no-brainer 85 percent of the women say the emotional infidelity is what bothers me more former student of mine uh barry cooley did a really interesting study of uh, analysis of this reality show called cheaters i've actually never seen it but mm -hmm. where where if you um, suspect your partner of cheating then a detective from the tv team will follow the person uh, and then they'll call up and say, we've just seen, you found your husband here in, in the no-tell motel. Do you want to come down and talk to him? And so the, and so what he analyzed though was the verbal interrogations that people had when they confronted their partner. And women wanted to know, are you in love with her? Men wanted to know, did you fuck him? Mm -hmm. Or, did you have sex with them? And so it's, it's this sex difference in sensitivity to these different cues of infidelity. And, and of course, there's, there's an evolutionary logic to this, to this sex difference. And it's been replicated, not, not the cheater study, but um, the uh, hypothetical Sophie's Choice study has been replicated now in Sweden and China. And, you know, it's, it's a universal sex difference. So given that sex difference, and you mentioned another one, to just return to, which is uh, in the engineering disciplines. Yeah, person thing orientation. Person thing. So until I started to see writing about it in the sort of psychology literature, I observed just anecdotally a lot. And the reason I observed it is I was confused. So I care a lot about robots. I'm a robotics person. And so a lot of males in the robotics community really didn't care about the what's called the human-robot interaction problem, which is like robots when they interact with humans. And then a lot of females, all brilliant in in the robotics community, cared about the human-robot interaction. They cared about the human, the what the robot communicates with the human, human in the picture, human in the loop. And I was really confused, like, because the difference to me in my anecdotal interactions but the the N is quite large there. <laughs> like I, you know, I'm in the robotics community. I know a lot of people. Yeah. And I was confused because for me, I really care about human-robot interaction. Yeah. I, I see, I care about both a lot. And in, in, in the same thing here in terms of emotional cheating versus physical cheating, I care a lot about both. And I have like this oscillating brain. So I wonder what that says about my brain. So I'll often wonder this because there's specific sex differences that are represented in the data and the literature. And I seem to oscillate depending on mood. Yeah. And I wonder what that says about me. Why do I care so much about that robot on the floor? I care not uh, half. I care about how it works and the other half, how it makes other people feel. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, so so I guess what I would say, this gets back to our earlier discussion of agency and communion, where uh, I actually think that it's a sign of being uh, well-balanced to have both capacities uh, within you. And so you get um, people who are, um, 
unimodal, or do they just have one mode of operating? Let's say it's the thing mode, mm -hmm. which which engineers tend to be good at. You you, almost, you have to be good at it to be a, a good engineer, because things have to actually work. Yes, you know it's it's not in some you know dream or hypothetical state. Things have to have to actually work. But with the agency and communion, I think it's good to have a balance, and that's why I think some of the best romantic relationships are those where people are, uh, they're high on what they used to call androgyny, where they have both the positive features of agency and communion, the positive features of masculinity and femininity uh, within the same mix, but also with the footnote of not the unmitigated agency or unmitigated communion, both of which can be negative. And so I view these as um, capacities and some people are out of balance. Some people have a good balance between the two. It sounds like you have a good balance between the two. Well, but also the allocation. I feel like it's a very dynamic thing. It's like, yeah. uh, um, um, at least aware for, for, for me personally, of the beauty between humans, of the, of the dance, of the push and pull, of the different moods. It's like a dynamical system. It's not two static entities fully represented and consistent through every interaction. Yes, yeah. Sometimes, you know, um, people might confuse the fact that I often talk about love and I I love humans, that I don't have a temper, that I don't have like, I lose my shit all the time, <laughs> especially like on things I really am passionate about, like people I work with and so on. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all over the place. Yeah. Like, there's, But underneath it, there's a deep love and respect for humans, but like I lose my shit all the time. Um, and that that chaos, that roller coaster, I think that's what makes human relations awesome. I mean, the, the, the push and pull of it, of course, it can oscillate too far, which is when it becomes Amber Heard type of situation, when it turns to emotional or physical violence, when it turns to jealousy, crosses a, a line where it's hurtful and there's like, it, that it crosses that vast gray landscape of what is abuse. Uh, versus what is just uh, beautiful turmoil of human nature, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's it's complicated. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's complicated and it's it's dynamic. And I would just add to I, I thought you phrased that brilliantly, um, but I would just add to that. It, it also depends on sort of what you're trying to do, and so I think some of the oscillation can be what task, what problem you're trying to solve. And so if you're, I don't know, trying to, you know, build a bridge or something, you need to be very thing-oriented and, uh, you know, make sure the damn thing actually works and doesn't collapse when a car goes over it. Um, uh, if you're trying to form a relationship, um, you know, and you're entirely thing-oriented, it's not going to work, you know. Uh, and that's that's one of the people uh, one of the things is with uh, and males tend to be more um, on the on the so-called spectrum uh, side of things where one of the hallmarks is a deficit in social mind reading just to add to your point about I guess I've already made it that of the dynamic properties of the roller coaster is depending on what problem you're trying to solve you might want to toggle back and forth to one pole or the other you wrote a book called Why Women Have Sex, Understanding Sexual Motivations from Adventure 
to revenge. That sounds fun. And everything in between. So why do women have sex? Well, I co-wrote it with a female, who's Cindy Meston, uh, a wonderful uh, friend and colleague and co-author and co-collaborator. I wouldn't be presumptuous enough to write a book called Why Women Have Sex by Myself as as, as a male. Did you contribute anything to this book? Uh, I'm just kidding. uh, I I, I, I did, but I have to uh, tell you a story about the, um, the origins of this idea. Uh, which I give credit to Cindy Meston for. Um, and we were, we, we'd, she's a colleague in, in the psychology department with me, and we would go out to dinner once a week or so, and, and we were just talking about this. She raised this issue. And so we started to brainstorm. Well, we, what, originally, it was why humans have sex. And that's the, the scientific article we published was why humans, because we're interested in males and females. And so I said, um, I would come up, well, uh, they have sex because of X. And then, Cindy Meston would come up, she'd say, oh, here's seven other reasons. And then I'd come up with one more, and she'd come up with another seven. Yeah. So it was like, you know, so so she's in, in some sense, importantly, the, um, you know, originator or fountain of this, of this idea. But... Oh, um, so she's able, there's something about the way she thinks about sexuality that's able to deeply introspect about reasons for sex. Yeah, and probably especially about female sexuality. And this is one of the interesting things and why it's so fun for me to collaborate with, with um, in this case, fe- female, because they do have a different sexual psychology than males. And so, and I've noticed this, that's why in my graduate studies, I've like I've had 30 or so PhD students, about half have been male, half have been female. And the, the, the women come up with different questions, different scientific questions that I wouldn't have thought of necessarily, um, and so um, and so. Anyway, so it turned out to be a good collaboration. I will I will say that we we co-wrote it, and that I did contribute to good. it, uh, <laughs> and uh, especially the the um, the evolutionary insights. So, is there a good few words you can say uh, to why women have sex? What are some primary motivations? Well, we we originally came up with a list of 237 reasons yes. uh, for why uh, why humans have sex, and they range from you know some of the obvious ones uh, because it feels good, uh, because I wanted to relieve stress, uh, be, to relieve menstrual cramps, to get rid of a headache, uh, to get my boyfriend off my back so I could get some work done. Yep. Um, so things like that to, <laughs> to others, uh, like, um, there's another one, uh, so that he'd take out the damn garbage. Yeah. <laughs> was yeah. One. yeah. Uh, but another one, it was kind of interesting that uh, someone, one nomination was uh, to get closer to God. Mm. So there were some that were kind of uh, spirit, spiritual. spiritual motivations for having sex. And then some of the nastier ones, like to get revenge on my, you know, on my partner, or to get revenge on a rival. So that's uh, sleeping with my, you know, rival's boyfriend. You know, yes. to, so there's some nasty stuff and some good stuff in there. It's so fascinating because yeah, sex has such a powerful role in our psychology, but also in our culture. So you can make significant statements about the in the status hierarchy about uh, about your sex, the selection of your sexual partner. It's interesting. So it's not just because you're horny. It's all those other kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. well, horniness is one. <laughs> but there are, there are other reasons. What about different kinds of sex? 
So, you know, what's, uh, again, this is not the Human Lab podcast. Uh, rough sex versus, quote, making love. What's the explanation between all of that? All the various kink. Now, that's just a basic sort of split. But all the different kinks that humans establish, all the different fantasies and all those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, well, that's a complicated question uh, for, for which I don't think we have uh, sufficient time to get into that in, no. in detail. And, and it is complicated because there are some sexual fantasies that, uh, sexual fantasies, by the way, I think are a really fascinating window into our sexual psychology because in a way they're, they're unconstrained by, you know, things like rules and norms in society and cultural presses that you're kind of free to fantasize about whatever you want to fantasize about. So I think it's, it provides an interesting window into human sexuality. Uh, and there are some predictable ones, and then there are some also individual or idiosyncratic ones. And, and um, the, again, the, there's a fundamental sex difference in, in this, in that uh, when you talk about like fetishes or like shoe fetishes, leather fetishes, different types of um, things, males are much more prone to those than females. Shoe fetish, you said? Shoe uh, fetish, foot, all, all, foot fetishes, all, almost all fetishes. Males are overrepresented. And, and I think it's partly because there's some evidence that they're classically conditioned. So I think that first or early sexual experiences that people have kind of condition them to the cues that are present during those early ones. And so if your first sexual experience happened to be, you know, um, involve visual images of shoes or you happen to be looking at shoes when you first had sex, uh, it's just an example, or, or leather or zippers or whatever the case is, uh, that people develop these very individualistic um, sexual turn-ons based on these early sexual experiences. Uh, so it could also be, you said have sex, but it could also be sexual feelings, yes. early sexual feelings, like, because it... Yeah. Um, so I wonder what that is about men that they have a more when they first start experiencing sexual feelings that they're more sensitive to the cues and those cues somehow have a deep psychological effect on their development of their sexuality. So if they have kinks, that means they're somehow more cue sensitive and maybe does it matter if society like slaps them on the wrist? For it? Does, does that help well, <laughs> solidify well, the kinks? Yeah, I don't know about the uh, society slap them on the wrist, but I think w what it is is th this. I think this is the evolutionary uh, hypothesis anyway about why there's this sex difference. And that is that men are conditioned to anything that's going to lead to sex. Because uh, whereas women don't have to be. Uh, uh, from male perspective, because of women's greater investment, because the nine-month pregnancy, uh, et cetera, uh, in order to reproduce, women have to invest this tremendous amount. Uh, men don't. One act of sex can produce an offspring. And so, uh, for men, but not for women. And so, this huge asymmetry in investment means that the uh, payoff mat matrix of different sexual strategies differs for the sexes. In that context, women become the valuable and scarce resource over which men compete. So anything that leads to successful sex 
is going to be selected for. And so men are very sensitive to being sexually conditioned. That's what's called sexual conditioning to whatever cues are associated with sex happening. Um, from a woman's perspective, sex is not a, um, a scarce resource. So a woman could go out here in, in Austin um, any night or probably any day on 6th Street and have no problem having sex uh, with a guy w within 10 minutes, mm -hmm. okay? A guy would have more difficulty. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, he's not going to go out, you know, unless he's, he, unless he's Johnny Depp or really, really charming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating dimorphism or asymmetry in, in our um, mate selection. What do you think is the effect on this young male brain, but female too, of pornography. So one of the fascinating things that the digital world brought us, now I I grew up at a time when like a magazine, like a Victoria's Secret magazine was like my source of um, sexual inspiration. Uh, <laughs> but that was so that was before the internet. And now the internet with pornography makes it extremely accessible. All kinds of kinks, all kinds of wild variety. Um, I mean, v variety and quantity is um, immense. So what do you think that has, how that affects mate selection, mating, and just the human psychology of the, of the, of the two sexes of the species? Yeah, great question. A big question. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we could have a whole podcast just on, on that, or at least talk for a while about it. So I'll just say a couple things uh, about that. One is, again, uh, there's a sex difference, and I, I feel like I'm a broken record here hammering on this, but uh, it so is- So a lot of, just to actually echo the thing, please be a broken record, because it's, it's interesting. The more we get to the mating, the more their sex differences represent present themselves, they surface. Yes, yeah, that's right. And in many psychological domains, there are, are no sex differences, or the sexes are very similar. Uh, but pornography is consumed, about 80% of the consumers are men. Uh, so it is very heavily a male consumer um, industry, uh, if you will. And um, I think that uh, it can have positive and negative effects depending on the circumstances. So one um, potential negative effect is that men might develop unrealistic expectations about what sex will be like or should be like in in real life. Uh, and so, and so, I remember actually this. I just heard about this one case of um, I won't mention any, any names where um, a man got married and he had been accustomed to seeing very large breasts in his pornography consumption and discovered that his wife had what he perceived to be very small breasts. Uh, in fact, they were actually just medium size, mm -hmm. but because he had been so heavily exposed to pornography and the artificially enhanced uh, breast size that is often depicted in pornography that um, he had uh, come to expect something that was that was unrealistic. In this case, um, not leading that's not, not not the way to lead off to a great sex life with your wife by being disappointed in her breast size. So I think that 
people can develop, in this case men, unrealistic expectations also about the kind of sexual acrobatics that porn stars engage in. And when they get in real life situations can put pressure on women to become, sure. you know, uh, to fulfill those, those kinds of images. Um, but the other thing, the other kind of detrimental effect that it has is, and, and this is something that is emerging culturally, is I think it has a dampening effect on men's pursuit of real life relationships. Yeah. Uh, because in some sense, it kind of bleeds off some of that sex drive or sexual desire, sexual energy. Um, and so they're, and, and some men get addicted to it. So they're spending hours and hours and hours a day consuming pornography. Uh, and so I think it can have a, a detrimental effect on, on, even on men's ambition. Yeah, um, there's something really powerful about that sexual energy, not to be all like spiritual about it, but it seems like that's somehow correlated with ambition. So like yeah. uh, one of the things that pornography can take away is like exactly as you said, is your pursuit of love out there, including women, but also love of things, meaning like building awesome epic things, yeah. sort of love of both bridges and women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bridge building and and, uh, and relationship building. Yeah, there's something about that energy. And, um, and also, uh, yeah, there's a sort of a, a vicious downward spiral because it somehow staunts your development because it limits social interaction that um, the push and pull of, of uh, romantic social interaction, it, it cuts the edge off of that and it forces you to be, uh, to spend way too much time with yourself without the development of that social interaction. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know, but there, so outside of the um, the expectations on all those kinds of things, it seems to have a detrimental effect on the development of the of the human mind. Yeah. Like, what, what is that? I don't, I don't, because some of that is echoed and, you know, people talk about the metaverse, that some of our life would be in the digital space. And it's like, on one hand, well, if it brings you happiness, if it brings you joy, short term and long term, why is the metaverse not the same or better than the real world? But there is something still missing. And what is that? Um, something of, of the pleasure you feel with porn is still missing. It's really not representing some of the fundamental pleasure you feel when you interact with real people. And that could be just the growth you experience. Like real people can reject you. <laughs> the challenge, the, the again, the push and pull, all of that, the dance of human relations. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, exploration of your sexuality. So um, on porn, you can kind of passively explore because you can see, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, a wide variety of things, and 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 people people do that. But in terms of exploring your your own sexuality, I think there's no replacement for a real human being. So you've written about violence, and here we're talking about porn and sex. Uh, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but I'd love to ask your opinion on, quote, incels. So here I would like to quote Wikipedia. Uh, that define incels as members of an online subculture of people who define themselves as unable to get a romantic or sexual partner despite desiring one. They also write, now I don't know if Wikipedia is the accurate source about incels, but here it is. 
They write, quote, at least eight mass murders resulting in a total of 61 deaths have been committed since 2014 by men who have either self-identified as incels or who had mentioned incel-related names and writings in their private writings or internet postings. Incel communities have been criticized by researchers and the media for being misogynistic, encouraging violence, spreading extremist views, and ra radicalizing their members. Is there some insight that you draw from this connection of sex and lack of sex to violence? Well, uh, I think sex and violence are linked in in various ways, uh, and uh, it's 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 not just it's not just incels. So, uh, uh, if you look at um, serial killers, for example. Uh, and this is another thing that I've, I'm, true crime is a, kind of an avocation of mine. I just enjoy reading about true crime and following true crime stories. It's avocation. Uh, ho hobby. A hobby. Side, it's, side, it's like super, side interest. Super fancy word for hobby. I got it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, like, like Ted Bundy, um, he was it's actually very charming and, and didn't have any trouble attracting women, but his killing spree started shortly after he was rejected by a very high status, attractive woman. Uh, and he felt a rage about being rejected by her. Uh, now, who knows, that's an N of one. And we don't know if, you know, you know, being rejected um, causes serial killing per se, but sex and violence are related in, in different ways. Um, I, uh, argue, and, and I haven't studied the incel community in, in detail. I actually have an incoming graduate student who's going to start in the fall who, who has been studying the incels, and so he'll have a more informed picture. But my attitude is um, there are ways to improve your mate value. If you're having trouble attracting a mate, there are ways to improve your mate value because a lot of things that women want in a mate are improvable. You know, they women want guys who are um, compassionate, who are understanding, who uh, are uh, ambitious, who, who acquire resources, et cetera, They're, who, who are physically fit. There are things you can do to improve your mate value. And so I would say rather than, uh, I would encourage incels or the incel communities, rather than being hostile toward women or being angry at women, um, just do things to improve your mate value, and then you will be more successful at attracting women. Yeah, I mean, some of it, that's a fascinating, so uh, your student will be studying that. There's a, um, listen, I love the internet. The internet always wins. And there's a fascinating aspect to it, which is just humor. And I, um, I'm fascinated by seeing the humor, whether it's 4chan or Reddit and all that kind of stuff, where where people maybe will self-identify as incels as a joke, as a kind of basically representing the fact that, you know, it's hard to get women. This this the struggle, the struggle. And for women, it's hard to get a mate that they, you know, the, they're basically jokingly representing the, the, the challenges, the difficulty of the mate selection process, that the desirable group is smaller than the entire group. That's it. And they're joking about it. But then it's interesting how quickly humor uh, again, a dynamical system, it can uh, turn into anger. And that on the internet is so interesting to watch, like how trolling, light trolling is humor, 
but it can turn into aggression. And I, I've just seen, it's weird. It's weird how this is true on the internet, but you also just look at the dark aspects of the 20th century that I've been reading a lot about how kind of lighthearted things turn dark quickly. And it's interesting. I, I don't know yeah. what to make of it because uh, it's basically sexual frustration that all humans feel. It's, you know, dating in general can turn into anger, uh, can turn into sophisticated philosophical constructs like uh, about how the world works, of who really is pulling the strings. Right. And yeah. That turns some of the worst crimes committed uh, by the Nazis, for example, or by extremely intelligent people that constructed models of how the world works. Uh, and th there's there's something about sexual frustration is one of the really powerful forces that could be a catalyst for constructing such models. And once you've done that, shit gets a lot more serious. <laughs> and it's no longer joke, it's serious. But at the same time, when you just look from the surface, it's kind of jokes. Yeah. It's, well, it's weird. That's interesting points that you're making. I, I think that there's a, this is one way in which evolution has built into us um, a, um, a feature which is really bad for our overall happiness. Uh, and, and that is that it's created desires that can never be fully met. You know, and that includes in the mating domain. So even with people who are successful in attracting, you know, somewhat desirable mates, maybe they want, you know, Giselle Bunchen or some, you know, they, they desire things that are, that are women that are higher in mate value or, uh, or, or a larger number of partners than they can successfully attract. And, and in a way, I mean, these serve as, Evolution is built into these because they're motivational devices. They motivate us to try to get what we want, but it also makes us miserable or at least unhappy or dissatisfied because there are desires that can never be fulfilled. And this is, and this is to mention one more sex difference, this desire for sexual variety, meaning a variety of different partners is much, much greater in men than in women. Um, and so that's why even like in, in pornography consumption, men will like, you know, go through multiple, multiple, multiple um, images and sex scenes and so forth uh, compared compared to what women who consume pornography go through. Uh, but this desire for sexual variety is is something that makes men miserable because it's something that they can't. Most men, unless you're a a king or a despot or um, you know, uh, have have a harem. Uh, it's something that can never be fulfilled in everyday life. And so, I even th think that you know, you, you talk to men who are walking down a city block in Austin or New York City or San Francisco or wherever, and they pass by. They could pass by six women and feel a sexual attraction to six different women in one city block. You know, <laughs> uh, now. And so this is, again, yeah. where evolution has created in this desires that can never be fully met. And, and evolution, well, it's useful, right? And the, the hilarious thing, that this is always about my own mind, but just observing people. Once you get that 10 or that uh, 
beautiful woman that you've been lost, you take her for granted and right, you move right. on to the next thing. There are classic cases like, um, I don't know if you're, you remember this this case, but uh, Hugh Grant um, was with Elizabeth Hurley, who is a gorgeous model, and he was caught having sex with a prostitute. I think it was in, in L.A. or whatever. And he's He's got Elizabeth Hurley. Well, why are you having sex with a prostitute? But yeah. it's the d male desire for sexual variety. <laughs> uh, well, let me uh, do a little bit of a tangent here and ask you about just your work in general in terms of its interaction with the scientific community and with the world at large. So many of the ideas you do research on are pretty controversial, or at least the topic is controversial somehow. Maybe you can speak to that. But what are your thoughts on the current climate of cancel culture, or maybe there's a better term for it, that word is like loaded now, uh, about you doing research in this space that is so sort of uh, essential, so crucial to understanding human nature. How, how, what are the difficulties, what are the concerns for you to be able to freely explore? Yeah, I've been doing um, research on these things. So when you, when you combine um, sex or sexuality with sex differences, with evolution, each of these topics are controversial by themselves, and you bring them together, the intersection becomes especially controversial. Uh, but I, uh, I, I guess, view myself as a scientist, and so, um, and so I would rather be uh, scientifically correct than politically correct, uh, if you will. So, I don't, I have no interest in, I don't have a, an agenda, I don't have a political agenda, I don't have any agenda other than discovering human nature. That's what I've devoted my scientific career toward. And I'm, and that's why I do the studies and responsive to empirical data and, and the best theories that we have available, the best conceptual tools. Um, so um, do some of these things upset people? Yeah. Yeah, they do. As a matter of fact, even um, early in my career, before I started publishing on some of these things, I gave a talk in the sociology department. This was at University of Michigan. And a female professor came up to me afterwards and said, uh, you know, you really shouldn't publish the results of your studies. Um, and I said, why not? And she said that it would, that, that people, women have it hard enough as it is without, you know, knowing about these things. And my view is, um, uh, my view is that's naive. I, I think suppression of scientific knowledge is is a bad thing, and suppression of scientific knowledge about sex differences is is a bad thing. Uh, men and women are not psychological clones, uh, especially when it comes to the mating domain and sexuality domain. The only the only other domain that shows massive sex differences that we haven't touched on is aggression. And violence. So the the leading cause of violence is is being a male. Uh, males have a and the more extreme the violence, the more males have a monopoly on it. So when you get to homicide, warfare, males have a monopoly on it. And we need to understand human nature, and we need to understand sex differences therein, in order to be in a position to effectively solve some of the social problems that these sex differences create. Um, so, um, you know, so I've been, 
uh, gotten some flack. Uh, no one's tried to cancel me uh, in my work so far. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wait. Yeah, just. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> but does it hurt you personally? Just is it is it psychologically difficult? You know to do this work because uh, what is research is thinking deeply through things and uh, yeah. um, like uh, doing studies, but also interpreting them and thinking through what is the right questions to ask. Yeah. What does this mean? And for that, you have to have a clear mind, a um, an optimistic mind, a free mind, and all of that. So it's, you're just a human. So psychologically, is it difficult? Does it wear on you? Yeah, um, yeah. I would say not, not really. But um, I've been, I think, fortunate. So even say my latest book, I published a book recently on conflict between the sexes, and um, and it deals with very controversial topics, including intimate partner violence, uh, like with the Johnny Depp, uh, Amber Heard thing. Um, and I, I don't talk about that in the book, but, um, uh, and, uh, and it's been largely well-received, you know, and I think partly it's because I am careful in my publications not to endorse it. So one of the common conflations that people make is they think that, uh, it's something that you think is good, you know, that, you know, um, if you find a sex difference, that there should be a sex difference. This is the is-ought confusion. Um, and so I try to make it very clear uh, that I'm studying what is, not what ought to be. And a lot of things that I discover about what is the case, I would prefer them not to be. And I think you kind of alluded to this earlier by saying that we— um, have to override some of our violent uh, inclinations or impulses, or uh, the way I would phrase it is we have to... Um, control them? Control or keep quiescent or suppress uh, some of, of the nastier sides of, of human nature. And and we've successfully done that in some domains. So um, you can talk about like one group that fascinates me is uh, the Vikings and the whole that whole um, uh, uh, era, mm -hmm. and so you have you have in in Sweden, Norway, for example, uh, these are these have the, like the lowest homicide rates on Earth. Yeah. Um, but you go back four hundred years ago, six hundred years ago, people were killing each other right and left, yeah. you know, and so and so finding. That uh, so, so this is uh, leads me to be optimistic that we can um, change conditions to suppress our evolved proclivities. Just like the one one physical example that I sometimes use is callus producing mechanisms. We have evolved callus producing mechanisms that are very valuable. We develop thickness in the areas of our skin that have experienced repeated friction, but we can, in principle, design environments where we don't experience repeated friction. Um, and so we won't grow calluses. And so you've designed an environment that basically prevents the activation of our callus-producing mechanism. I think we can do the same thing with some of these other inclinations um, and, and have succeeded in, you know, uh, reductions of homicide in, even in the last couple hundred years. And some of that has to do with the myths and stories we tell ourselves. Like again, it's language. Because I, I mean, I love the Vikings, uh, Valhalla. That idea. Yeah. That's a myth. That's an idea. That's a promise for the for the great land beyond. 
over there beyond the mountains. It's like an animal farm, Sugar Candy Mountain, that is promised to you if you're a great warrior. I believe Valhalla is where half the soldiers go um, as a reward for for great soldiering, for being great warriors. And the thing I just recently have been reading quite a bit about Valhalla, which is, um, it's a, such a fascinating how the, these myths are constructed. The, um, I believe, I just think this is such an awesome setup in terms of a, a, a kind of heaven, which is they spend the entire day fighting. <laughs> so they, for joy, and if they die, they're reborn the next day. So it's it's you're basically the passion, the thing you're passionate about without the consequences. On top of that, I think there's a pig or a boar uh, that is they keep eating. So it's regenerated every single day. So unlimited food, and there's unlimited beer, I believe. So right. it's like it's or, like or, or mead, maybe. mead, mead. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mead. I don't know. That's that's fascinating that we construct these myths, and at the same time. Uh, these myths can be used to get humans to do some of the worst atrocities. So some of the violence requires us to have those myths of what is waiting for us beyond death, sort of beyond over there in Sugar Candy Mountain, as uh, Crow says that in Animal Farm. And so, you know, I think the more and more in this modern society, the positive of not constructing so many myths is that we get to live more in the moment and that forces us to optimize and improve the moment and we get to face the irrational and the painful aspect of violence. Maybe we should reduce that in the here and now. Yeah, the downside is we may not, if we dispose of God or these kinds of religious and spiritual ideas, we might descend into a, you know, what Nietzsche worried about with nihilism. And it's a, it's a beautiful dance because humans seem to tie themselves together with narratives. Yes, yeah. And with myths and stories that we all believe, if you completely dispose of them, society, I don't know, we don't know. We don't know what's yeah. going to happen, if it's going to collapse or if it's actually going to rediscover better myths, better stories, more scientifically grounded ones, uh, ones that are driven in data and all those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't have any um, brilliant insights into it other than that, you know, uh, to agree with you that people construct narratives, uh, uh, well, of their own lives and sometimes the, uh, the life after death. Um, but I guess I would add, and this is maybe a more cynical view, but you mentioned atrocities. I think that um, leaders can sometimes exploit uh, those under them to create um, forms of uh, violence or justification for um, for warfare like in you know in the like the the group that we are conquering they are uh, subhuman they're they're insects they're an infectious disease that is you know and so these these narratives can be used by leaders to exploit and motivate um, people under them to commit these atrocities. So it, it's a nastier part of our psychology, both that leaders do that, but also that people are vulnerable to narratives of that sort. Yeah, it's fascinating to look pre-internet. You hope the internet makes us more resistant to that. 
which I do have a, a, probably a question on that. But if you look at just the propaganda machines during World War II, on the Nazi side and on the Soviet side, on every side, but the, particularly in those two, it, it's so fascinating both how effective a simple message can be in um, a leader being able to convince the small inner circle around them, uh, convince themselves, which is fascinating, propaganda, yeah. like you start to believe the propaganda you generate, and then how easily the, the populace is convincible. Again, you hope that the internet, the distributed nature of the internet makes it more difficult to run a propaganda campaign, at least of the classical sort. I do have uh, a question about this because you mentioned Elon Musk. When we're talking about status hierarchies, like you and it, I it, can't buy Twitter. And <laughs> wealth accumulation, yeah. What, what do you think about Elon buying Twitter, um, in particular in the reason, the state of reason uh, that he's doing so in um emphasizing free speech? That's an interesting question, but I don't really have an informed opinion about it. You know, I don't know. Um, uh, it's not my area of expertise, and I don't, um, I don't know enough details, and I also don't know what his plans are for Twitter, what, what changes he plan proposes to implement. Well, I, I, the reason I bring that up is because, and, and you, you've kind of said you don't necessarily feel a tremendous amount of pressure, but in doing controversial research, in doing research on controversial topics. You're also a communicator, and Twitter is a platform in which you communicate, and there's going to be, if you get canceled somewhere, you get canceled on Twitter. Yeah. And so there's pressure. So what does free speech look like in these public platforms? It's communicating difficult ideas. It's changing your mind, is exploring ideas, and not fearing the mob. Uh, the mob that pressures the platform to remove you from the platform or to ban you, shadow ban you from the platform, decrease your reach artificially on the platform. And those are really fascinating questions that yeah. we get to deal with in this new digital age. So there's a lot of ideas, what you said what Elon is planning to do. Forget Elon, how do you do this well? That's the question. And uh, there's sort of an absolutist view of free speech, let anyone say anything. And I tend to be a person that believes everybody should have the freedom to say anything. The question with a social media platform is, well, uh, can you force anyone to hear what you have to say? Because the virality, the viral nature of communication means that you can uh, control who hears what you say. Yeah, the virality of that, the search and discovery aspect. And it's a, I think that's a fascinating question from an algorithmic perspective. The amount of data out there, just like papers, there's a huge amount of papers. What you want is to find the best papers, the ones you agree with, but also the ones that challenge you. And you don't want to nonstop read the papers that challenge you. You're going to be mentally exhausted. There's a bucket of attention and focus and mental energy you can allocate, the ones that really challenge you, the ideas that really challenge you are exhausting. It's good, yeah. just like going to the gym, it's good. But then you also want to read uh, things that are fun for you. And th those are, you know, um, 
If you're spending your whole life in arguments, that's going to be exhausting. You want to hang out, chill with your friends, watch some Netflix, have fun, whatever, yeah. uh, easygoing, and sometimes have difficult academic arguments with people, for example, with people you disagree with, but not all the time. And you have to have a platform. What does free speech actually looks like? It's a platform where everybody can challenge anybody, but not destroy them by doing so mentally. So you have to balance uh, personal growth of each individual person on the platform. But definitely removing people from a platform is a terrible thing. So on top of that, it's like, how do you get measures that the platform is doing good? Uh, what I really like what Elon said, uh, and I've talked to him about this, is uh, pissing off everybody equally, the extremes of every side equally. In the political spectrum, you could say the left and the right, is uh, measuring by pissing off the extremes equally because currently there seems to be an asymmetry in that. So that's one good measure that allows you to maximize, as he says, the area under the curve of human happiness. Uh, that's one thing. The, the other is repre people representing themselves honestly. So removing the bots from the platform. It's such a weird world we live in where yeah. you don't know who's real and not. So anonymity is an awesome thing. The awesome aspect of anonymity is it protects people's privacy. It actually gives them freedom to think, freedom to speak even more so. But when anonymity is weaponized, it allows you to be cruel to others without the repercussion of cruelty that you would feel in the physical world. Right. So you, you want to use anonymity as a shield versus as a, as a sword. So to protect yourself from the attacks of others, but not as a way to hurt others. And those are all really tricky things to figure out. And it's not, you know, not all of it's gonna be solved with an edit button, which I believe is the most requested Twitter feature. Anyway, I think I think this is really, um, I think this is fascinating, not just for people talking about politics, which is what everyone seems to care about, but also for science, for people challenging each other in the scientific domain. Because I, I, I at least have hope for scientific communication where people can start playing around with different mediums of communication. So not just academic papers, but just ideas, yeah. playing with those ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you have, so evolution psychology, well, no, that even that it can be super high turn, uh, uh, turnover rate of importance. But you know, you have with COVID, it seems like the progress of science and scientific debate uh, is most powerful in that context if it's done really quickly. And it feels like Twitter, like most most of the best things I've learned about COVID and to stay up to date was uh, was on Twitter. Yeah. It's so exciting to see uh, science happening so, so, so quickly in all kinds of domains there. And that, that was great. But then you step in with labels of what's misinformation. You have this kind of, uh, conformity-seeking uh, labels of what is true and not, which is a very unscientific thing to me, in the name of protecting the populace. It's a weird, it's a weird um, impulse that people have, which is, well, here's an organization, here's an institution that is a possessor of the truth and everybody else is untrue. Now, a lot of the time, maybe majority of the time, that institution is going to be correct this consensus. Consensus is the consensus because it's usually correct. But the biggest ideas are going to be against the consensus. And certainly that's true in evolutionary psychology 
where it seems like, are we even, is the cake even baked yet? <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of turmoil in terms of figuring out human psychology. Well, there's a lot that we don't know. I mean, if human psychology, if, if it were a simple thing and we only had, you know, three or half a dozen psychological adaptations, we would have discovered all of them by now. It's, it's that it's so complex, multifaceted, multi-mechanism um, uh, part that describes human nature that it, it, it was what makes it exciting, but also the amount that we know is small compared to the amount that we don't know. And so that's why you have to approach these things with, um, with a certain humility. And, and that's why even like in the in the mating and sexuality domain, which I've been studying for a number of years, I, I keep coming across things that I don't know, questions that are unanswered, um, which which is is um, ma makes it exciting from my perspective. I mean, that's what the joy is of being being a scientist. You mentioned I got to return real quick to uh, Ted Bundy. You mentioned oh. you have uh, so you you you've written about murder and violence. Right. In a long distant past, but the thread runs through your work today. Who to you is the most fascinating serial killer of of the of the true crime yeah. uh things that you've explored? I think well, Ted Bundy's way up there. Uh I think uh Charles Manson um uh and is another um Have you seen on Ted Bundy because I find him super fascinating. No. Have you seen uh there's a lot of movies on him? Extremely wicked, shockingly even and vile. It's a retelling of his life from the perspective of his girl, long-term girlfriend. No, I have not seen that one. Which yet. ties together a lot of our conversation. So I, it's probably my favorite one. A lot of people say it's the best movie on Ted Bundy, so you should mm. definitely watch it. I will. Uh, I recommend it to others, but it's from a perspective uh, of the relationship. And it just, one of the really powerful windows into a serial killer that I saw there is that from the perspective of the relationship, you can have just this healthy looking relationship. Yeah, there's some fights and so on, but the usual dating and all that kind of stuff was all there. So yeah. all the murders he was doing, he had a long-term girlfriend throughout all of that. And also throughout all of that, I'll try not to give away in, in case you don't know the story. Throughout all of that, she stood by his side. He, she refused to believe everything that was happening. Yeah. Until, until um, you know, the very end. Of course, it shifts in the very end, and that's a fascinating shift uh, of the the breaking of the of the illusion. But it's really fascinating that you can have those two things. That you, you... yeah, well, I think that part of it is we have these stereotypes that we expect people like serial killers to be these. Um, ugly, um, drooling creatures that are sort of uh, e evil all the time. Uh, and so um, that's why even like you had, um, I don't know if this is, if I'm remembering this correctly, but like Stalin who killed, you know, mil millions of people apparently like loved his kids and loved his family and people. So, so we have, that's part of the complication, uh, the, the complexity of human nature and human psychology is we, we don't have just this one, you know, this one property that dictates how we behave in all circumstances. 
Yeah, the devil is going to be charismatic. That's why, um, that's one of the things I've learned about just looking at evil people, looking at Jeffrey Epstein, who seemed to have hoodwinked quite a lot of people. Yes, yeah, that's another that's another fascinating case. Yeah, not of a, he wasn't a serial killer, but a serial sexual predator. And a lot of people I know and respect didn't see the evil. Yeah. And so I never met the guy, but it's like, are you guys oblivious? Like what, what was, there must've been something. And from everything I see is purely just charisma. It's the, it's the, it's the smoke and mirrors. Yeah. That, uh, well, he was a very charming psychopath. Yeah. And, but I, I think every psychopath to be effective has to be charming. Yeah. The <laughs> successful ones. Yeah. The success- yeah. Successful psychopaths. Oh yeah. And that was, I mean, Ted Bundy was one. He was a good-looking guy, um, intelligent, and could turn on the charm, and and then had this evil. Is there something interesting to be said that I think a large percentage of the fan base, like I've seen numbers like 80% plus of the fan base for true crime shows is women? Is there is there some psychology behind that? I haven't seen that. I'm, I'm not aware if a uh, sex difference that I'm not aware of. That you should. You should def- <laughs> I mean, I, I've I've heard that in a lot of places. So I wonder if there's hmm. some uh, there's something about true crime. Maybe because it's um, just just like sexual kinks for for men develop early on for the, the cues. Maybe for women, there's the cues of the threat of violence the attentiveness to violence develops early on and so and therefore yeah. fascination with violence well well i think that i mean one thing is that well with serial killers specifically i don't know if this is true of true crime in general but serial killers like you you find like um uh, a lot of people well, a lot of women fall in love with them uh or you know even if they're they're jailed for serial killing and I think one of the features of it is that um, it it parasitizes or hijacks status mechanisms in that a key cue to status is the attention structure. That is, the high-status people are the people to whom the most people pay the most attention. And so serial killers garner a lot of attention, and even though for evil deeds, um, it's still attention. So I think that, that that hijacking of our status allocation adaptations is partly responsible for that. Is there, given the, the trajectory of your life, you mentioned Berkeley and the East Coast and Michigan, you got, you got everything. Is there, given the trajectory of your life in geography and in science, can you give advice to young folks today? high school, college, thinking about how to make their own trajectory, how to make their own way through life that they can be proud of, either career or just love life or life. Yeah, well, not necessarily on on careers, but I can give advice on on mating, you know. (laughs) And I I think it's one of these things where, um, you know, we have requirements in for the courses that students have to take in high school, for example. And I think there should be a required course on relationships, on on mating. Uh, so not just sex. 
Yeah, not 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 just sex at all. Yeah, because I mean, most of what's taught is they taught, they teach about sexual health and how not to get an STI and so forth. Yeah, my uh, my teacher uh, put a condom on a banana. Right, right, but th- it's but, very exciting. But um, how how to select a mate? Um, how do you know if you're in a bad mating relationship? Uh, how to how to get out of a you know uh, a bad mating relationship? Um, I think that. Uh, that there's at this point in the science, even though there's a lot that we don't know, we know enough to at least provide some heuristics or general gui- guidelines to things to watch out for. So just as, as a concrete example, uh, with intimate partner violence, uh, and this is male to female, there are statistical predictors of is this guy, does he have an increased probability of beating you up? Uh, and they are things like if he starts to insist on knowing where you are at all times, if he starts cutting off your relationships with your friends and your family. Um, so there are these kind of early warning signs, and I think women should know about those. Uh, or even things like um, that women are most in danger of being killed by an ex during the first three to six months after they've broken up with him. You know, that, that sometimes they think it's, you know, the guy will say, oh, meet with me one one last time and then I won't bother you again. Um, no, this is a dangerous time. So I think there's some knowledge that we do know that can be used to make informed decisions about our mating lives. And I think that should be taught. So consider that, like take that, the, the, ma- the mating strategies, the, ma- the mating life seriously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, because... Um, you know, aside from a small number of people who are totally uninterested in any kind of mating or sexuality, and there are a small percentage that fall into that category, um, we all confront problems of mating. You know? How do you, you know, there's that uh, um, called the, the mathematical model, like secretary problem, marriage problem. I don't know if you're familiar, but yeah. basically you have, a, it's, it's a silly, perhaps not, uh, it's a formalized, simplified queuing theory type of thing where it's you have n n subjects and you get to date some number of um, people, and then there's a stopping condition. I believe it's n over e, beyond which you pick the next partner, which is better than anybody you've dated before. So uh, yeah, let's yeah. not overemphasize that idea, but um, if if I were to psychologize it, I, I would say that some exploration is good, some dating is good, but at a certain point you pick somebody, given the set of people you've explored, you pick somebody who is uh, pretty desirable within that group. Yeah, yeah, but I would add that what you also want to do is you want to... Um, mate with someone who's equivalent in mate value or, or or has even what's more difficult is has a um, likely equivalent future mate value trajectory because nothing remains static. Yes, uh, that's beautiful. Uh, but it's also the case that there are individual things, we haven't talked about these, but things like um, religious uh, orientation, political orientation, uh, values, these are extremely important to be compatible on. And so you do have cases of, let's say, a Democrat marrying a Republican. Uh, 
uh, and that sometimes works, but you're going to get into a lot of conflict, other things being equal, or someone who's um, deeply religious versus someone who is not at all religious. That's is going to be a problem, or someone who's of a different religious faith, um, and and so uh, compatibility on those things, compatibility also on personality dimensions. I think there's some main effects. Like so, I would I would recommend avoiding that dimension we talked about of emotional instability. Because if you sign up for that, you at least should know you're going to be in for uh, a lot of conflict. It may be exciting at times, but there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. Know what you sign up for. What about how much to date? So there's a culture. I'm uh, speaking soon to a founder and longtime ex-CEO of Tinder. So there's that culture of digitalized dating of swipe right, swipe left. Uh, is it positive, negative? How much did you date? Yeah. What's the number? And also, what number of sexual partners should you, what's optimal asking yeah. for a friend? I, I don't know if there's a single optimum there. Um, I was hoping there was. I, I think that- is it, is it single digits or double digits? I need answers. Well, I don't know. I get some of my wisdom from lyrics from uh, songs. songs. So, uh, Me too. Uh, there's this, this uh, Eagles song, I think Don Henley you know, said something like a lyric of too many lovers in one lifetime ain't good for you or something like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. you know, I think there there is a, uh, a- Take it easy is a good one too. Yeah. Or uh, basically don't, don't, get, don't get too attached. Don't take it, don't take heartbreak too seriously. Yeah. Just so, but but I think I mean you know internet dating and you know there's there's been some work on them. I think has its pluses and minuses. You know, I, and one of the pluses is it gives you access to potential pools of mates that you could never possibly meet in real life. You know, where mating and dating used to be either people you knew or friends of friends, or you go out to bars uh, or parties. But so that's the good thing. Gives you access to those extended pools, but also it gives people the um, illusion that there's always someone better out there for you, someone right. who's just a little more attractive, a little more compatible, a little more. And so uh, it produces what's sometimes called decision paralysis. You know, you have too many options and you you can't choose. I think one, one other potential um, negative, which I think could be corrected by these internet dating sites, is that the picture the photographs uh the of the of the face and body tend to overwhelm all other sources of information and so especially if you're if you're just looking for a sex partner that's one thing physical appearances it's fine for that to be overwhelmingly important but if you're looking for a long-term mate there's so many other things that are really really important and so but but people tend to be uh swamped by the visual input, which is natural because that's where we evolved to respond to visual input. We're not evolved to respond to words, you know, like, uh, oh, I'm, I like to go fishing or something like that. Uh, so if there's some way for these sites to, in long-term mating, for these other characteristics to be made more salient in people's information processing, I think that would be a valuable uh, improvement. Yeah, because even... Forget long-term beauty. Even sex appeal is is um, like even the word appearance 
it feels like to me, people that are super sexy in real life are a lot more than their picture. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it's actually surprising. Like they come to life in different ways. Yes. It could be either submissiveness as shyness or ex extravagant um, wit and humor or like a super confident or super sh like whatever they are, the, whatever the weirdness that they are comes through immediately. So when people say, well, which is the case of the, uh, of sort of proponents of dating apps, it's like, well, when you meet somebody at a bar, you're getting the same experience as you do on a dating site. You, you have very little information. All you get is appearance. But I don't think appearance on the screen is the same as appearance in real life, yeah. especially with people that for some reason you find super sexy. Because like, and again, the objectification that we mentioned earlier is the, the um, it over optimizes for people who are good at taking pictures of themselves. <laughs> like they're representing themselves inaccurately. Um, they're not just even in the physical features, but in the way those physical features are used in physical reality. Like in terms of body yes. language, in terms of flirtation, in terms of just everything, every, everything put together. So I just, um, there, I, I wonder if there's a way to close that, uh, to close that gap. And I don't know what that is exactly. I tend to believe more information is good on dating. I, think, I don't use actually dating apps. I just, because they don't make any sense to me because there's not enough information. Like what this, like uh, to me, like whether you know Dostoevsky or not is important. And I don't mean that because you read specifically a book by Dostoevsky, but there's something about, have you suffered? Have you thought about life <laughs> deeply? Have yeah. you been shaken in some way? And that's not, sometimes books can reveal that, sometimes something else can reveal that, but this kind of very shallow resume, like, I like to travel, I have boobs. Right. <laughs> it's like this kind of uh, thing, is, it loses the humanity of it all. Yeah. I want, because listen, as a fan of technology, I would love dating, to open up, like you said, the pool of possibilities out there. The soulmate idea, like, I believe that there's an incredible people out there for you that is an, an emotional connection, not yeah. just a physical connection. And so that the promise of um, digital tech is that you can discover those people. And that, that's not just for romantic relationships, it's for friendships, it's for business partners, it's for all that kind of stuff, like your yeah. your friend groups. But yeah, there's something seems broken about dating sites. Yeah, well, that's why, I mean, when I'm asked for advice on this, I say, if you feel like you have a connection with someone, meet them in person. You meet them in, in real life. And because, take a road trip, like you said. Yeah, take, <laughs> stress test it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because there's only, I mean, so much you can learn through messaging and so forth. Amongst all of this, we didn't really, we didn't really mention love, which is hilarious. Uh, so let me ask you, as, as in, in the last just few questions, what's the role of love in all of this in the, in the human condition? So if, um, we talked about mating, we talked about mate selection, we talked about all the things we find attractive in a mate, the status hierarchies and all that kind of stuff. What about that deep connection with a human being that's hard to explain? Well, we talked about it a little bit, but so if yeah, we're talking throughout. about love, like like romantic love, um, um, I think it's an evolved emotion that evolved in part to solidify a long-term 
pair bonds. Uh, and is it different from the love of a parent for a child or, or brotherly love or sisterly love or other uh, friendship love? I think it's, these are different phenomena. But if we're talking about romant romantic love, I think it's an evolved emotion. Um, leading hypothesis is that it's a, it's a commitment device. Uh, so if I say to a potential mate, um, oh, uh, you exceed my minimum thresholds on intelligence and, and looks, I think we, we make a good couple. It's a good uh, pickup line. Yeah, it, it, wouldn't, um, it wouldn't do much um, emotionally. But if, but if you say, you know, I, I love you, it's, I, I, can't, I can't stop thinking about you. I, it, it's this uncontrollable emotion that I feel toward you. It's, it's a sign that, you know, um, that I'm committed to you uh, at least for a while, uh, and I'm not going to abandon you when, when you know, if you're an eight, and when an eight point five comes along, I'm not going to drop you and go with the eight point five. Yeah, uh, it's, it's that's so interesting, but that's you know, it's still, it's still the reality of the emotion is there. However, it evolved, it's still there, and it's interesting. It's one of the more puzzling pieces yeah. here. Um, even broader than romantic love, but in romantic love, like what is that? Uh, how much of that is nature? How much of it is nurture? Because even, I mean, I ask that myself all the time, like I'm deeply romantic. How much is that is nature? How much of it is nurture? How much is the, is the, the people I spent my childhood with, the ideas, I mean, um, the Soviet Union sort of is known for the literature and the movies and so on that are that are very over that are heavily romanticized. I don't want to say over romanticized. Maybe there's no such thing. But so maybe what is that? Is that my upbringing or is that some somewhere in the genetics um, that I value that emotional connection? Yeah. A lot? Well, most humans have the capacity for love. You know, whether it is um, activated in any individual person, such as you uh, or anyone else, it, it is going to be uh, adjusted or suppressed by different social and cultural and upbringing factors. You know, I mean, there, there are cultures where parents basically lock away girls, they cloister them, and so they can't ever meet anyone else until they, the parents arrange to marry them. So they, they're, they override any possibility of, um, of love. Um, but uh, I, I, think, I think it's an evolved emotion. And um, I mean, one kind of test of this, and this is just slightly circumstantial evidence, but in China historically, there have been arranged marriages and then, you know, individual choice marriages. The arranged marriages tend to have higher breakup rates and lower child production than the ones that are sort of voluntarily chosen. You know, so called. I've heard of sort of contrasting stuff from India. I, I wonder uh, well, contrasting so with the, where the arranged marriages are longer lasting. Yeah. I, uh, it's so interesting because you said China. Yeah, yeah that, I would love to see the data and the dance of that because maybe yeah. there's a lot of other interesting factors like how the arranged marriage is arranged. Yes, um, is it for the families? Is the interest of the families for some kind of like in the monarchies to make agreements to trade resources, or is the interest of the family 
to maximize the success of the marriage? So compatibility, is it, are they looking for maximize compatibility or are they looking to maximize resources? Well, historically, uh, uh, it's often been an arrangement where they're trying to maximize the status and power of the, of the alliance with this other extended family. Yes. Um, but, but that also varies uh, from culture to culture. Like there's the, uh, the Tiwi culture where there's, uh, you know, the, the, the men basically bestow the da their daughters on other men and they, they try to gauge which men, which of these young up-and-coming men are really going to be, you know, chiefs, high-status guys, and which ones are going to be losers. And so, um, you, know, you have this w weird phenomenon. They have polygynous marriage where uh, a guy will get one daughter bestowed on him, and then other men use that as information uh, that this guy must be rising in status. And so they give their daughters to the guy as well. And so the guy might have, go from like zero to seven wives in yeah. very short span rich of time. The rich get richer. That's fascinating. Uh, the Game of Thrones um, and sex is a, is a part of that game. Let me ask you about yourself, your own self. Who mentioned Richard Rangham? Think about mortality. Do you think about your own mortality? Are you afraid of death? Yeah, interesting. I'm not afraid of death. Um, I, I agree with with Richard Rangham. I, I, I'm not eager to leave the party. I don't yeah. want to leave the party soon. Uh, I enjoy life um, in all of its interesting complexities. I enjoy my scientific work, I enjoy my relationships with other people, I enjoy exploring the universe, so I'm not eager to, to leave. But I'm not afraid of it. And I think um, part of that is that um, I was married for a while and um, my wife died uh, prematurely uh, of cancer. And so I spent basically eight months with her watching her die as she, after she was diagnosed. And there's some weird, it was a horrible time for me and for her, obviously, but there's some way in which it kind of um, made it more familiar so that it's uh, became a lot less frightening, you know? Um, but... Um, How did that experience change you? Just as a scientist, as a thinker about humanity, um, as a as a human yourself. Well, I, I so you're saying you felt yeah. like you felt a little bit more ready for this whole end of the party. Well, or yeah, it's I mean because we tend to be afraid of things that we're not familiar with, you know. And so if you're familiar with it, um, I, I know at least in my case that 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 caused a lessening of um, fear on on that dimension, but. I don't know. I, it also kind of, you know, there are these existential thoughts that it brought about, like how ephemeral life is. And um, and I remember this Richard Dawkins quote. He said something like, um, we are all going to die and we're the lucky ones. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, that we got, a, we even got a chance. Yeah. Or, or even, uh, uh, you mentioned Russian writers. One of my favorite writers is, uh, Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov. I don't know if you've read him, but he, he said once that, um, life is a chink of light between two eternities of darkness. 
<laughs> and you're saying that's not terrifying to you? Well, I'd, I'd prefer, I'm, I'm happy with the prior, the first eternity of darkness. I'd prefer the second um, not to occur, but um, but it's going to occur. I mean, it's um, we know that uh, um, Elon Musk aside, I, I, I'm skeptical that we'll be colonizing other planets in any substantive way. Uh, and so our our star, our sun will will burn out. Uh, and so it, it's going to take a few billion years or so, but um, it will eventually the earth will become a cold lump of um, dirt floating around in the universe with no life on it. So, so it's not just your light, the light of your consciousness. It's the light of our human civilization that will eventually go out. Yes, everything. At least here. I do believe that there is life and intelligent life in other parts of the uh, universe on other planets. I sometimes wonder if the second eternal darkness is the thing that makes the light possible. So in, in the other places out there, um, I wonder how successful you can you truly be without the deadline of death, both at the human scale and at the civilizational scale. I feel like we, in order in order to create anything beautiful, we have to live at the, on the edge of destruction. <laughs> that seems to be, um, you know, some people would say that's just a feature of our past, that our future can be otherwise. But, uh, yeah. you know, like you, I'm uh, somebody that looks at the data. <laughs> and currently the data says otherwise. But, uh, of course, we're constantly changing the data because we're, there's change. So we'll see. We'll, we we see. I wonder what the future uh, future holds for us. Speaking of which, as a, a you know, as somebody who wrote a textbook on uh, evolutionary psychology, what do you think is the meaning of the whole thing? What's the meaning of life? Um, You're very good at describing how the human mind is the way it is, but why is it here at all? What's the purpose? Well, I can give you my answer to that, but I would actually love to hear your answer because I know you've asked this question of dozens and dozens of people on your podcast. And yeah. what what are what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, my mind changes on that at all a lot, and I think the process of answering the question is the fun thing, not the actual final answer. I think the question itself is the most fun thing. But for me, usually, is two things. One is love, and we can talk a long time. What I mean by that is it's not just romantic love. And two is to create, and hopefully to create beauty. So, and again, I can talk forever what that means. For me personally, creating beauty means engineering and creating experiences, like connection with others. On the love side, it's just the actual feeling, the experience of deep appreciation of um, everything around you, like the sensory experiences of everything around you, just feeling it every single moment, saying, I'm damn glad to be alive. That light with the darkness on your side, just being appreciative, like being in the, in the experience of of truly present and experiencing it. Because um, 
because it's not going to be there for long. The whole thing ends. And that, that to me is love. And the, the reason romantic love is so important is, um, is that other people are just awesome. They're, uh, they're fascinating black boxes that can generate awesomeness. So can like other animals and objects for me, but uh, humans in particular, for some reason, are just yeah. generators of awesomeness. Yes. They surprise us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And therefore a good uh, target of love. Well, so that's a much more uh, eloquent answer than, um, than I could give, but I'll just say a, a thought or two um, yes, on that. And uh, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you, you know, what is the meaning of, of life? I mean, in some sense, um, if you're thinking about some eternal purpose, meaning like if we look 5 billion years hence, you know, will any of this mean anything? I think the answer to that is probably no. Okay, but, and this is, I think, where my answer would concur with yours is that I think we have a rich, evolved psychology that contains many complex adaptations. And at any one moment in time, most are quiescent, most are not activated. Uh, but for me, part of the meaning of life is experiencing the activation of a lot of these complicated evolved psychological mechanisms, and they include romantic love, they include friendship, they include being part of a group or coalition, because I think we're an intensely coalitional species. So there's something about being a group member. So like just even, I don't know if you're in, in sports, if your your team wins, you feel that somehow that's you're part of that. Um, uh, and, and, but this goes for both the positive and the, and the, uh, darker sides of things. So, so for example, warfare, um, you see these men who have been through a war together and who, where their lives have depended on each other and they're like best friends for, for life and have a bond that is stronger than most people form with a friend ever in their life because they've been through the, these life or death experiences. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to, um, you know, <laughs> doesn't cause me to want to charge off and be in, in war, but, uh, but there are some types of adaptations, even like warfare adaptations, where in principle, uh, I would like to experience them. I would like to experience, and, and never will, but, uh, you know, what is it like to be in a coalition where you are in combat with another coalition and not not modern warfare because it's it's you know horrible but where your life is in danger where your life you depend for your life on other people and they're depending for their life on, on you and there's this kind of coalitional solidarity that is um is unique now um uh, another thing that, of course, I'll never be able to experience is is murder because I'm never going to murder anybody. Okay, but the um, night is young. But studying homicidal ideation really gave me a it was an it was an eye opener. It was as interesting as studying sexual fantasies because the if you ask what triggers homicidal thoughts ideation, most people have had them. 
uh, and uh, and I because I asked this question, have you ever thought about killing someone? And and I get about ninety one percent of men say yes, and about eighty four percent of women say no. And even when I talk to people, they say one on one, they'll say, "Oh no, I've never thought of killing someone. What kind of person do you think I am?" And then ten minutes later, I say, "Actually, there was this one time yeah. when I got this guy humiliated me in public, and I, you know, and and so." But I think um, thoughts about killing, um, homicide ideation, and they're very predictable from an evolutionary perspective. If you, like we mentioned mate poachers earlier and uh, infidelity and there are other things, but uh, things like that being humiliated in, in public, status loss, you know, do trigger homicidal thoughts. So, so uh, anyway, I don't go off too much on, on that, but I guess what I'm saying in answer to your question is, is uh, experiencing the rich array of um, complex psychology that we have within us, most of which remains unactivated and some of which will never be experienced. Um, like, you know, there are some people who will never, never experience love, for example, because of, you know, cultural restrictions or, or, or whatever. And so, uh, to me, that that's part of the meaning of life. So that's that's so beautifully put. The saying that they're kind of dormant, inactivated aspects of the uh, sort of the psychological mechanism. So we have the capacity to experience a bunch of stuff. It's almost like in video games, you can unlock levels and so on. And so this is basically there's all of these things that are dormant in our mind that we have the capacity to experience. And part of the meaning is to try to experience um, as many of them or uh, as many new ones, novel for the particular society or maybe the entirety of human civilization. Who knows? Psychedelic drugs, like you said, violence, uh, experiences that might have to do with brain-computer interfaces. The interaction with all of those are experiences. And so the question is, what is the ceiling? What are, like, what? How uh, infinite or nearly infinite is the capacity of the human mind to experience all those things, and we get to uh, we get to discover those things. So um, I'm glad you never got a chance and never will get a chance to murder. But I just <laughs> want to put it on record that uh, um, you know that's definitely something on my bucket list. Why do you think I dress like this? <laughs> anyway, um, there is something appealing. Like one of my favorite movies is Leon the Professional. Oh, I love that movie. What is that? Why is that so exciting? Listen, maybe it's in the OCD thing, like killing other bad guys. Right. No women, no children. <laughs> no women, no children. Uh, also, loving that with uh, uh, Natalie Portman. Oh, Natalie Portman, yeah. incredible actress. Uh, also, the complex, whatever that is, the fatherly or romantic, whatever that is, like Lolita type of thing. I don't know what. I, I've never like uh, re, uh, read a PhD thesis on that interpretation of that movie, but that's a fascinating one. Violence and violence and love and sex. That's what makes. Uh, life worth living. That's what makes it fun. David, you're an incredible person, incredible scientist. It's a huge honor to share a city with you. Or I'm a, I'm the visitor. You own this place. Well, you run this place. Well, I don't. I, we, both, we both live here now. And, yeah. And uh, it's been great talking to you. It's a great honor for me. Um, I mentioned, I've, I followed your podcast for a long, long time now and tremendously enjoy your, your interviews. And uh, you have a very... Um, 
inquisitive, inviting style that brings out things in your guests, which I think is fantastic. Activates all those dormant yeah. psychological mechanisms. Yeah. That's what that, that's what life, that's what conversation is all about. Thank you for talking today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with David Buss. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from E.B. White. If the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I rise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.